Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know, it's not the best quality song you've ever heard, is it? But you should give it a bit of slack, because this song right here, well, it's called The Last Chord, and it was composed by Arthur Sullivan in the 1870s, but that's not the really significant fact about this piece of music. Instead, its significance lies in the fact that this is one of the earliest pieces of music known to be recorded by the phonograph. The only reason you're able to hear it right now is because Thomas Edison thought it would be a good idea to transform how we think about music, how we enjoy it, and how we can access it. If you weren't aware, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, also called the gramophone. Strictly speaking, Edison invented the phonograph, but other geniuses like Alexander Graham Bell, bringing his knowledge of the telephone to bear, perfected the formula and moved Edison to perfect his own phonograph design in the 1880s, to compete with the gramophone. In this era of 19th century invention and innovation, in such a niche sphere, some seriously important names were floating around at this point. Names you'd probably recognise. We already mentioned Alexander Graham Bell. But names like American Dictaphone were doing the rounds as well. And experimentation was already being done on what we would recognise as the record player. Where this all matters to us, and to our Bismarck series is in the fact that while Thomas Edison and company were inventors, they were also salesmen. They had to persuade potential buyers that their product was worth their time and money. How best to do that than to draw a lot of publicity towards their new invention. In August 1888, after having fine-tuned his phonograph to create the perfected phonograph, as he called it, Edison presented his product to a London conference where that opening song was played before an eager audience. It was a known tactic for inventors across the world, and for salesmen generally, to hire a salesman of European renown, and then have them sell your product to audiences in France or Germany or Russia, etc. It was a very traditional idea to hire a well-connected German, for instance, in the hope that this German would use his connections to sell the phonograph to the German market, and that by impressing enough important German figures, the profile of the device would increase even further through great publicity. In 1889, Edison hired just such a salesman to travel to Germany, 
and sell his product to the most important and influential figures in the land. The Kaiser, Wilhelm II, Helmut von Moltke, and even the visiting Russian Tsar were on Edison's list of potential buyers, and they were known to be very interested in the technology. Of course, these figures were all important, but there was another figure which Edison really wanted to grab the attention of. Yes, you may have suspected, judging by the title of this series, and judging by this long tangent, this figure was none other than the Chancellor of Germany at the time, now in his twilight years of power in 1889, Otto von Bismarck. How fortunate for Thomas Edison and his German salesman then, that Bismarck was very much interested in seeing this technology for himself, or at the very least, his wife Johanna certainly was. Both of these individuals had heard recorded voices and music played for them on the phonograph, and while Bismarck was convalescing in his castle in Friedrichsruhe near Hamburg, it seemed the ideal moment to visit this prince of diplomacy and make history in the process. On the 7th of October 1889 then, Thomas Edison's salesman and technician, Theodore Wangemann, visited the Bismarcks, and watched as the cutting edge of technology was combined with the raw, albeit dulled, magnetism, energy and wisdom of the elder German statesman, who was now in his mid-seventies. I like to imagine sparks flying, or at least Bismarck getting a load off his chest as he recorded his voice, ripping into his rivals, proclaiming the triumphs against his enemies, but several decades on his governmental throne had perhaps warned Bismarck to be cautious. He was worried that pretty much anything he said would be used against him. So instead of doing what we might expect, Bismarck kept it fairly innocent. He read some poetry and recorded some words of encouragement and wisdom for his son Herbert, who was then in Budapest. The recordings were disseminated throughout Europe and the United States, as fascinated audiences, his son Herbert among them, got to hear the Iron Chancellor's voice in some places for the very first time. Sadly though, after this brief flurry, the world moved on, nobody having had the foresight, so it seemed, to save such a recording for posterity. Bismarck's voice and the voices of other Germans like Helmut von Malke, which were also recorded during this trip, seemed to be lost forever. Von Malke's recording was especially significant because his was the only voice ever recorded of a figure born in the 18th century. The sheer significance of that alone was enough to cause historical sparks, but alas, as we said, they were all lost, and historians were forced to make do with what they had and look forward to a time when these invaluable primary sources might be, somehow, found. Sure enough, in 2011, a forgotten cache of unmarked wax cylinder recordings was found in a locked chest in Thomas Edison's laboratory. These primitive wax cylinders must have had something about them which moved researchers to take them to the nearest phonograph, and we may thank the gods of history that they did so. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when the researchers heard Bismarck's voice for the first time in more than a century. In the collection also was von Molke's voice and other recordings plainly made on that trip which Theodor Wangemann had made over 1889 to 1890. It was like a slice of history, an audio slice of history, and a source without equal for historians. It's time for us now to listen in to this treasure trove, and to hear the voice of a man who we'll be getting very familiar with over the next few hours and few episodes. 
Remember now, this was recorded in October 1889, and it involved Bismarck reciting poetry and some life lessons for his son in German. He also rattled off the first few lines of the French national anthem for some reason, but why he did this has never really been explained. Anyway, listen carefully now. Try and listen through the interference if you can, and just try to hear Bismarck's voice coming through. I'll do my best to play around with it and try and emphasize his voice as best as I can. So what do you think? Maybe you, like me, had to listen to it a few times to properly get it. And I know the sounds of interference caused by the rudimentary recording design and likely by the damage that had been inflicted on this stuff during storage doesn't help us, but I'd like to bring you back for a minute. Why, you might be wondering, have I just played a recording of Bismarck for you? And why have I gone into such detail about the phonograph as well? Well, believe it or not, these two things are connected. You see, Bismarck was the historical figure to first get me into history, and Thomas Edison and his phonograph can be considered the distant ancestor of all recording equipment. Included in this recording equipment, of course, is the device I'm using right now, my Blue Yeti USB microphone. Had Edison not been an inventing machine, in other words, had he just settled on inventing the motion picture camera and a better light bulb, then our world would be a much quieter place, and it's entirely possible we would be much further behind the technology curve. Who's to say in that silent alternative world, podcasting would even exist? Now, it may well be hyperbole to label Thomas Edison as the father of podcasting, when he had no idea what a podcast was in late 19th century America, the poor guy. But whether he realised it or not, Edison sponsored a breakthrough in invention and technology which continued to be perfected right up to the present day. Think about it. If there's no music recording technology already in place, then what motivates Skipper Wise and Martin Sulperans to establish Baltic Latvian Universal Electronics, better known as Blue in 1995. Blue being the manufacturers of microphones such as this Blue Yeti, but also the Blue Snowball which I started out with all those years ago. Much like Edison gave millions of people around the world the chance to hear and record music or audio, Blue has done the same. But without Edison's breakthrough, we'd be living in a very different world indeed. Without Alexander Graham Bell perfecting Edison's design and forcing Edison to compete with him and make it even better, who knows where we'd be. Would the record player, the compact disc, even the Sony Walkman exist? Without Edison, there's no phonograph, there's no cassette tapes, there's no earphones, there's probably no Spotify. Music would of course always exist, and radio would exist probably as well, but how we access and engage with all of it would look and perhaps sound very different. In this sense, you could argue Thomas Edison was the Bismarck of audio. And if Thomas Edison was the Bismarck of audio, then Bismarck needs no introduction for what he had already accomplished by 1889. 
But both figures are significant to me for other reasons too. Without Thomas Edison, I would never have this technology in my hands, and you wouldn't be hearing When Diplomacy Fails' latest project right now. Without Bismarck, though, there would be no When Diplomacy Fails, and my interests may well be different entirely. Just as Edison gave me the technology, sort of, Bismarck ignited the passion for history within me that nobody else could. Eight years ago, when I was developing my podcast idea, I honed in on Bismarck because there was no other figure I could possibly cover for my first episode. The very name of my show was coined to explain what happened when diplomacy failed, and Bismarck, to me, seemed like the most fascinating ingredient in that question of why. Since, after all, Bismarck had had a direct hand in bringing three successful wars to life in the space of just six years. It is incredibly satisfying to see that in October 1889, the two worlds of audio and Bismarck collided, and as a result, we're left with the only known recording of the Iron Chancellor's voice. There's something poetic about the fact that eight years on from when we first started with Bismarck, we're now going back into that world, on a scale and with details like never before. Bismarck, the man who made podcasting possible for me, combined with Thomas Edison, the man who made podcasting possible full stop, it seems like a winning combination. However, before Thomas Edison rose to the heights of fame, he was effectively homeless and slumming it in his friend's house in the late 1860s. Similarly, Bismarck didn't cast a very inspiring silhouette before his 32nd birthday. Until he found politics, Bismarck was something of an aimless waster, drifting through different positions and using his connections and social status to essentially stay afloat. The self-educated, temporarily homeless Thomas Edison didn't expect to become a multimillionaire, and when the raw figure of Otto von Bismarck uncoiled itself for the first time in an 1847 political assembly, few could have expected that this radical firebrand, with no formal political training to speak of, would rise within 15 years to rule Prussia, and then Germany, and then Europe. In Shattering Expectations, Thomas Edison and Otto von Bismarck have more in common with one another than they may well have realised. But their stories only converged in 1889, when Bismarck's profile, combined with Edison's technology, made magic. Now, with the descendant of Edison's phonograph in my hands, and the story of Bismarck running through my mind, I believe that it's time, 130 years later, that these two entities converge again. And who knows, perhaps we'll be able to create a bit of magic in this series as well. Either way, I really want to thank you, the listener, for joining me for this journey through the mists of Bismarck's fascinating early years, when we watched that youth take shape and become the unlikely leader and dominator of men and history. Without any further ado, it's time we got started. We begin our story in summer 1862. At this point, Otto von Bismarck is essentially between jobs. But he's not down and out, and he is still recognised as a very important cog in the Prussian state administration. As if to prove this, he decides to go on holiday to, among other places, London. And he's important enough to be granted an audience not just with a few ambassadors, one of them being the Russian ambassador, 
but also Benjamin Disraeli. Now, this is Benjamin Disraeli before he became British Prime Minister. At this stage, he had been Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he had also been leader of the Conservative Party in the House of Commons. So, Benjamin Disraeli was, in his own right, a pretty important politician. It was at one of these meetings that Bismarck met with Disraeli and the Russian ambassador, and had a bit of a conversation, just casual, free-flowing stuff, like you would with a friend. And this was fine. But Disraeli and his Russian friend probably didn't expect Otto von Bismarck to be so frank and so direct with his words. So stunned was Disraeli by what Bismarck had told him and his Russian friend that Disraeli later took down the details of what amounted to really a confession, a kind of manifesto of what Bismarck intended to do in summer 1862. So let's hear what Disraeli wrote down and, by extension, what Bismarck told him. I shall soon be compelled, this is Bismarck here, to undertake the conduct of the Prussian government. My first care will be to reorganise the army, with or without the help of the land tag. As soon as the army shall have been brought into such a condition as to inspire respect, I shall seize upon the first best pretext to declare war against Austria, dissolve the German Diet, subdue the minor states, and give national unity to Germany under Prussian leadership, I have come here to say this to the Queen's ministers. Nor was this the end of the incredible story, because after leaving the company of Bismarck, a stunned Disraeli met with the Austrian ambassador, a distinguished Saxon in his own right, by the name of Karl Friedrich Witzun von Eckstadt. Disraeli, recounting what Bismarck had told him to a stunned Eckstadt, then warned the ambassador, Take care of that man, meaning Bismarck. He means what he says. Nine years later, while on assignment in Paris for the Hasbury Emperor, having done pretty well for himself once again, Eckstadt would have been able to watch as Prussian and German soldiers marched through the streets of the French capital. Only a few miles away in Versailles, the German Empire had been proclaimed, united under Prussia, and led by that same Bismarck, who in 1862, according to Disraeli, had meant what he said. We have no record of how Eckstadt reacted to Bismarck's fulfilment of his grand promises, promises which must have seemed really impossible in the summer of 1862. True, it had been nine years since Eckstadt had been in London, and nine years since Disraeli had issued his warning to him, and a lot can change in nine years. But can the whole world change in that amount of time? How many of us, just to consider this, how many of us can make the whole world change in that amount of time? How many of us could do that when all the elements of a state are on our side, and when foreign opinion, not to mention the habits of armies and of generals and just random chance in general, works in our favour? But what if we had none of these things? What if we had no political party to lead, no popular affection to draw on at home, and we didn't command a single soldier, and we didn't have any previous experience of what it was like to govern or to lead? It sounds almost like an impossible challenge, something no one in their right mind would take up. Yet these impossible criteria were what awaited Bismarck when he took up the post of 
Prussian minister-president in autumn 1862. Under these same circumstances, and with so many odds against him, Bismarck did the impossible. He fought three wars, he remoulded Prussia as the dominant power in Germany, then he moulded Germany into Germany. He forced two proud European great powers, the French and the Austrians, to bow down to his upstart kingdom, which became an empire, and which turned on its head the balance of power which for centuries had been the norm. Henceforth, at the centre of Europe, there would lie Germany, the realisation of all the hopes and all the dreams of nationalist Germans, courtesy of a man who historians still believe was not particularly nationalistic, nor particularly fond of his German brethren, or even the Prussian Junkers with whom he would have socialised with, however reluctantly, in his earlier years. After completing this trifecta of triumphs, of successful wars, this hat-trick of happy outcomes, Bismarck then went on to dominate the German Empire for another generation. He retired only when the new generation confronted him, some would argue, with the consequences of his actions. And that's the interesting thing about historians. They still disagree, and quite passionately in some cases, about Bismarck. And what do I mean when I say about Bismarck? That sounds a bit vague. Well, I literally mean in nearly every aspect of his character, his policies, and his legacy, historians have differing opinions. Was he a conservative Junker of the old school at his core, as some believe? Or was he just an opportunist with no principles, driven by cold ambition and the dream to hold as much power as possible in his very large hands? This question of principles invades additional debates. Was he truly anti-Semitic, as some believe, or did he only hate particular Jews who got in his way? Did he make use of the increasingly popular anti-Semitic rhetoric at the time to undermine these annoying Jews? Was he anti-Catholic, or did he engage in his wrong-headed and costly anti-Catholic policy from the early 1870s for political reasons? Was he possessing of an anti-war ethic? Did he hate war, and did he only make war because he saw no other way, or did he care as little about the lives of his soldiers as he did of his enemies? Was Bismarck driven by the dominant ideology of the Prussian class of the day, which involved duty to the sovereign, honour and loyalty above all? Or did he fight those duels merely for show? Did he overwhelm his sovereign out of a sense of patriotism and betray anyone who got in his way because he had a sincerely better vision for Germany in mind, which he thought would benefit all of Germany? How did he reconcile or balance his passion for country isolation deep in his rural estates with the burning, consuming desire to dominate and to rule at the highest pinnacles of power? Was he responsible, as some have insisted, for the outbreak of the First World War, because he created an empire and a nation which only he could control? And once he left in 1890, having wrecked German liberalism and dominated diplomacy, his successors failed to carry the impossibly heavy baton. Should he be blamed for this, as one Guardian columnist claimed he should be in 2014, for, as he put it, designing a car which only Bismarck knew how to drive? These questions are all important, because answering them satisfactorily would enable us 
to get closer to the truth of Bismarck the man and of the Germany he created. Periodically, historians, German or otherwise, attempted to grapple with Bismarck, usually as a result of renewed interest in the subject matter brought on by particular circumstances. So for example, Germans in the 1920s grappled with Bismarck in a bid to return to their better days. Historians after 1945 tried to measure Bismarck's responsibility for all that had thus far transpired in Germany. Historians in the 1990s, confronted with the unification of Germany's eastern and western halves, were compelled to return to the study of the last figure to have united Germany into one. In the years in between and since, studies of Bismarck of particular note were released. The most noteworthy, and definitely the most useful for this series, was by Jonathan Steinberg, whose 2011 book Bismarck, A Life, you've probably heard about, and if curious slash obsessed about the man, you've also probably read. Other bright lights exist, though. In my view, you could do far worse than Edward Crankshaw's controversially critical biography of Bismarck, released all the way back in 1981. It's also available on audiobook, and it's performed remarkably well therein, so I confess I found it very useful, even for the sake of getting a devil's advocate perspective, since I don't agree with everything that Crankshaw said, though I do recognise that in several aspects he has a point. More on Crankshaw later. Then there's Otto Flanz's iconic trilogy, examining Bismarck and Germany's unification, published and translated into English over the course of the 60s and 70s. Lothar Gall's 1980 biography, translated a few years later, provides useful insights into Bismarck's revolutionary character, in spite of Bismarck's conservative origins and outlook. For me, though, the classic tome, and really my first introduction to Bismarck as a figure, remains A.J.P. Taylor's Bismarck, the Man and Statesman. Taylor's book was first released in the early 1950s, but it's been reproduced so many times. One such production ended up in a random charity bookshop where 14-year-old Zack happened upon it, and where I grasped the dirty paperback and marvelled at the Iron Chancellor's moustache for the first time, thus beginning a whirlwind of adventure and discovery. It was a love affair which involved tales of overwhelming power and majesty, captivating triumph, expansion and hubris. It would not be hyperbole to state that Bismarck ignited my passion for history in the first place. Little did he know, of course, that he was doing this, because nothing ever seemed to come close to him or the impact he made. And when I made the decision to start this podcast eight years ago, there was no subject other than that of Bismarck, which I could present to the listener first. Now, unfortunately, I have to confess, sorry about this, I've lost that tattered copy of A.J.P. Taylor's biography, but I have certainly not lost my passion for the subject which Taylor first instilled in me nearly 15 years ago. As ever, now my mission is first and foremost to cheer you up with all this coronavirus stuff that's happening, but my goal is also, hopefully, to instill a similar passion in you, the listener, whoever you are, wherever you are, and however you like to listen to this. May you tangle and battle with this fascinating, rewarding subject as I have. May you love Bismarck, loathe Bismarck, or be kind of uneasily unsure about exactly how you should view him in general. Believe me, we've all been there. Of course, this brief rundown of authors barely scratches the surface of all of the stuff that you can find on this man. 
As Karina Urbach, writing for the Historical Journal, observed in 1998, Approximately 7,000 books, including up to 50 scholarly biographies, have been published on Bismarck. His life has been taught to at least six generations, and one can fairly say that almost every second German generation has encountered another version of Bismarck. No other German historical figure has been as used and abused for political purposes. Bismarck served scholars as a martial figurehead during the First World War, as an ideal Nazi predecessor in the 30s, and as a caricature of everything Prussian after 1945. This fascination with the Iron Chancellor, as we've seen, wasn't confined to Germans alone, much like study of and admiration for Napoleon is far from a solely French occupation. In the view of many of these historians, and unlike studies of Napoleon though, the character of Bismarck, well, let's just say it tends to frustrate more often than it satisfies. For his part, British historian G.P. Goosh, famous for his research in the origins of the First World War and for bringing caches of primary source material on that era for life, thanks a lot for that Mr. Goosh, because if not for you, my master's dissertation would probably be about three pages long. But in any case, Goosh made a stab of his own at the Bismarck subject, writing about the old man in 1948 that The last word on the Iron Chancellor will never be spoken, not merely because historians will always wear spectacles of different tints, but because, with the passing years, it becomes ever more difficult to disentangle the consequences of his actions from the impact of his successors and the swirling tide of events. You could also say that one of the most awful but also wonderful things about history, if such a combination is even possible, is that it's pretty much impossible to have the last word on anything, let alone any popular or renowned figures who dominate the consciousness of whole peoples, or in Bismarck's case, who dominate the century in which they were born. If arriving at the last word of Bismarck is a somewhat impossible task, and if we do plan in the future to tackle Bismarck's life and times in more detail, which we do, in the Patreon-exclusive Age of Bismarck, and in the future I'm talking like three or four years once the PhD is done and stuff, you may be forgiven taking all this into consideration for wondering why we're taking on this series at all. We're pretty far into this episode to be second-guessing ourselves, so great job, Zach, but I can tell you that well, I have several reasons for doing this series, which will probably take several hours and multiple episodes. I'm thinking at least five at this stage, if I want to cover everything in Bismarck's life. So from literally his beginning to his end, which is what I fully intend to do. So hold on to your hats, folks. In any case, you might be wondering if I'm going to cover it in a few years' time, why I'm bothering doing it here. Well, the long and short of it is, I have several goals here. First and foremost, as I've said, I want to cheer everyone up considering everything that's happening in the world and I figured that people keep on asking for Bismarck. I would generally get asked fairly often either what the status is with the Age of Bismarck series, if I've forgotten about it, or if I'm in some way related to him because it seems like I'm so biased towards him in general. All of those questions are fair enough, but I feel like it would be nice to settle the score a little bit here and cover Bismarck in a way you may not be expecting. It's all very well for me to do this from the comfort of my usual formula, where I have the scripts and you can rely on a 30-40 to 40 minute episode every 
week or so. But what if we did it like this, where I ramble for four hours, five times? How do you like them apples? Probably not all that much, but sometimes it's good to try new things. And I feel like with the Bismarck story, there's so much content in it that you really can try new experiments like these and, well, see how they go. A more selfish goal, perhaps, is to get the name of this podcast out there a bit more, and, if people are feeling generous, to get more PhD pals on side. Because, while asking for money is my least favourite part of what I do as a history podcaster, literally, I hate it so much, I stress about it, I feel gross asking in general, and I've mentioned this to many of my podcasting peers, and my wife and my friends, and they all agree, they all empathise. And if you are also bothered by it, don't worry, I feel the same way. And I understand, it's not nice. But the fact of the matter is, this podcast is paying for my PhD, and I'd be remiss if I didn't capitalise upon the serious amount of interest and demand for a series like this. So those two goals, I want to cheer you up and I want to make some fast cash now, are pretty straightforward in themselves. But a third goal, perhaps an honorary goal, is that I'm doing this for selfish purposes. You see, I am so fascinated by Bismarck, more fascinated than anything else in history. It is my favourite historical topic because this man touches off so many different levers, so many different points. He impacts so much. The world we're living in today is literally the way it is largely because of him, for better and for worse. I've wanted to do something like this for a really long time, and as I mentioned a little while ago, since I've handed in my literature review, I had the time to sit down and, while I'm waiting for the dreaded feedback on that literature review, focus on something completely different. So, speaking of something completely different, how about launching a Bismarck series in the middle of our 30 years war analysis? Don't worry, it's all going to be fine. But when I say I'm fascinated by Bismarck's story, I mean the man himself, the decisions he took, the era in which he lived, etc, etc. And as far as I'm concerned, there will always be room for more investigation into Bismarck. And, in my view, this can only be a good thing. So while we will be returning to this subject matter in a few years, there's no reason why we should hesitate in beginning now. If for no other reason than that, as far as I know, Bismarck, for whatever reason, has been virtually ignored on the history podcast scene. Let's change that. Now, I should make you aware that when it comes to Bismarck as well, I know we've talked about the historiography a bit, which is to say we've talked about authors, what they wrote and what their opinions were and how they contributed to things. Sorry, my brain is still very much in literature review mode. But really, when it comes to Bismarck and the historiography, there's one fundamental question which isn't really asked enough. In fact, you could even say it's glossed over. But we're going to do our best to answer this question in these episodes of Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails, however long it's going to take. What is that question? Well, you'll find out after the break. No, I'm just kidding. The question is, why? On the surface, the question of why is a pretty simple one, but take a closer look. Why did Bismarck do what he did? Was it because he was a German nationalist and he wanted to see Prussia's king transform himself into the emperor of the Germans, thus fulfilling the desperate pleas of so many nationalist Germans? Was it because he was in the right place at the right time to take advantage of the right circumstances 
and because he happened to depend on other incredibly talented men, such as Helmut von Molke and Albrecht von Roon, to name just two. Or, as some have suggested, was it because Bismarck, at his core, craved power, and he knew that the best way to reach the zenith of power was to unite Germany, not through democratic means, not through some flaky parliament, as some suggested at the time, but through conquest, through the desolation of the hopes and dreams of Denmark, Austria and France. And by rolling through these countries, maybe Bismarck imagined that he could recast Prussia on the world stage as Germany, thereby, as the Chancellor of this empowered Germany, becoming entitled to new sources of power which, before, had only been beyond his wildest dreams. On the surface, it might seem easy to take option C and cynically declare that Bismarck wasn't moved by any kind of ideology and only by his desire to acquire power. But if we go with this latter option, we're confronted with other problems. Why did he want power at all, when as we have said, he really loved being left alone in the expanse of his estates, where he could hunt, fish and ride with nobody to bother him? Actually, it has to be said, I think Bismarck would be pretty good at this whole self-isolation thing. But why was he so desperate to will himself to power, when he knew he had the support of no party? When he knew that the heir to the Prussian throne resented him, and when he knew that the support of the Emperor, that being William or Wilhelm, was only given reluctantly at the very best. Didn't he know that by balancing on this tightrope for the rest of his life he'd be bound to suffer? And wasn't he prone to complain to so many of his friends for the rest of his life about how hard his life was, and how bad his health was? All the while, Bismarck alienated potential allies, he ruthlessly blacklisted former friends, and when it came to his health, it's a whole other issue. He shortened his own life with a monstrous appetite, a reckless abandon when it came to consuming food and drink. A reckless appetite which caused him to insist on gorging himself, despite himself, until he became physically sick, as his poor doting wife Johanna brought him yet another portion of something that he couldn't possibly need. That's the thing about Bismarck. He was a man with several layers. Kind of like an onion, but he was also brimming with contradictions, a fact which his most acclaimed recent biographer Jonathan Steinberg noticed when he declared that his subject was one of the most interesting, gifted and contradictory human beings who have ever lived. Having seen the limited amount I've seen, and if you think I've seen a lot, then really there's so much more out there that I'm not even aware of about Bismarck, but it's difficult to argue this point even now. The debates on Bismarck's life rage on, though. Edward Crankshaw, who we mentioned earlier, even named the third section of his book on Bismarck, To What End?, as if to pose that relentless question to the reader. To what end, we could ask, did Bismarck drive himself to lead Prussia to triumph and dominate Germany and Europe? To what end did he declare his intentions to do precisely this, to Disraeli and the Russian ambassador, a full nine years before any of this stuff was realised, and before, don't forget, he had even been given the reins of the country, which he imagined himself soon to be leading. To what end had Germany been unified? Was this for the better, a fulfilment of natural order and a realisation of a people's dreams? Or 
as some have said, and as some still believe today, was what Bismarck did a hideous manipulation of sentiments? Was it an unnecessary fusion of traditions and cultures? An unwanted wrench in the workings of Europe? When faced with these weighted questions, the assumptions that we might have in our minds, surely they fall away. Was Bismarck really a German nationalist? Was he genuinely a conservative? Did he do all of this for Prussia and its king, or did he just do it for himself? According to Disraeli, at least, Bismarck knew what he was going to do before he had even set out to do it. But how on earth did Bismarck know? And why did he even want to do all of this in the first place? The issue is, of course, like with pretty much, well, all historical figures, to be quite honest, we won't ever be able to satisfactorily answer questions like these unless we could ask the person in question. And since that is unfortunately never going to happen, the best that we can really do is engage in the same detective work which all historians engage with. So we'll piece together his life and times and we'll try and get to the bottom of things, making judgments and drawing conclusions from what we find. It is difficult at this stage to say what we will find, and it is doubtful that we'll find anything that hasn't been found already, especially since yours truly lacks any knowledge of the German language, and a lot of the most reaching, most effective, and most perceptive histories of Bismarck are written in German. Though interestingly, there are far fewer biographies of Bismarck in German, because biographies don't seem to be a particularly popular device to use as a German historian. In any case, we have a range of articles, we've loads of books, and we've loads of other studies written by leading scholars on Bismarck in the last century. We also have words from the man himself. Bismarck's Memoirs, Volume 1 and 2 of The Man and the Statesman, which Bismarck wrote in the 1890s as he fumed and cursed the name of Wilhelm II. These works are obviously invaluable, and I will be using them to provide Bismarck's perspective on certain events. Their accuracy and impartiality is up for debate, of course, but they can provide a uniquely hilarious point of view at times, which only a man like Bismarck could provide. It'd obviously be crazy to do a series on Bismarck and not look at what the man actually thought of and said about himself and his own record in office. Sometimes the most rewarding thing you can do is look at an account of a particular event or a crisis given by AJP Taylor, for example, and then to look at what Bismarck himself actually thought of what happened and what Bismarck actually thought he did or what he contributed to what happened. Several times I've been given a far clearer picture of an event or a crisis, etc., by the man himself than by a historian. So, yeah, definitely worthwhile looking at them, even though they were edited and translated many years ago. Really, the way I look at it is a kind of Churchill treatment of these events. Of course, we know that Winston Churchill served and was very much active during the First and Second World Wars, and that he wrote what amounted to his memoirs on those two conflicts as well. But we also must bear in mind with Churchill's works that while they are useful, they're also not free from bias, and they also tend to paint Churchill, unsurprisingly enough, 
in a pretty favourable light. With some notable exceptions, Bismarck's memoirs are quite similar, so while we will be taking some of his more grandiose claims with a pinch of salt, and don't worry, we'll be talking about those grandiose claims because they are pretty hilarious in themselves, we will be making good use of them nonetheless. A little bit of housekeeping before we go any further than I promise I'll leave you be. If you're interested in reading anything else about all of this Bismarck stuff, we'll release our notes for each of these episodes on the Patreon post, so you'll be able to see where I got particular quotes or why I arrived at particular conclusions, if that's your thing. Remember, there won't be the traditional script that you'd normally expect from the regular episodes, but I will, of course, be putting in footnotes, and when I do quote from historians or from Bismarck himself, I will be putting the reference in there. So if you want to track down these things, if you want to track down these historians, that'll be the best place to go. I do plan on releasing a bibliography when all this stuff is finished, but since I don't know at this stage writing the first episode what sources I'm going to use for Bismarck's final years, for instance, then there's not much point in releasing the Biblio now. I'll release it later when we have all of this stuff finished properly. Again, this is the last time I'm going to say this, but future episodes of this series will be placed behind the PhD Pal Patreon tier paywall. But enough about those future episodes to come, which have to be paid for. What about this episode right here? What's on the box of this? Well, straightforwardly enough, this episode is about Bismarck's beginnings. And it's a story which isn't often told, and it's not all that well known about. Most historical narratives, don't forget, begin in 1871, when the existence of Bismarck is just assumed, and his rise to the top of the greasy Prussian pole is taken for granted. By starting here in his early days, and working through his very fascinating career, through the 1850s particularly, we get to see exactly what it was that made Bismarck tick, who he ticked off, who ticked him off, and how he nonetheless, almost despite himself, reached the point of being Prussian minister-president in 1862, only to launch a war against Denmark two years later, a war against Austria two years after that, and the war against France four years after that. I'm going to keep this simple and just say that we're covering the years 1815, when Bismarck was born, to 1864, well, pretty much the end of that year, because by that time the war against Denmark was pretty much over, and in the rearview mirror, and Bismarck was thinking about bigger and better things. So we'll at least get to see the early part of his life, we'll get to see how he became minister-president, how he pushed his rivals aside, and how he managed to put into practice those ideas and theories on Prussia's position in Europe, which he had been spouting for a very long time. What is especially interesting, as we'll see in this episode here, is that people didn't really agree with what Bismarck had to say about Austria. They certainly didn't agree what he had to say about the French. Bismarck had acquired something of a reputation for himself as a reactionary, someone who was a conservative Junker, yet somehow, even though he was from the old school of the Prussian nobility, somehow managed to find himself on the extreme fringes of what was acceptable to say or to advocate about foreign policy. For many in Prussia at this time, it would have been, really, the accepted course to advocate some kind of understanding with Austria, and some kind of 
policy of opposition to France, especially because the French began to display some of their more revolutionary credentials once again, particularly once Napoleon III took over as emperor and founded the Second French Empire in 1852. From 1852 onwards then, and during the Crimean War and afterwards, Bismarck was very much in the minority. In his vantage point in the city of Frankfurt, he was able to snipe and criticise the Austrians to anyone who would listen, which of course made him few Austrian friends, but Bismarck believed that it was more important to pursue a sensible policy than it was to pursue a policy that was clouded by principles, or, in the case of France, clouded by the fact that many Prussians didn't like Napoleon, didn't trust him deep down, and believed that he was something akin to the Antichrist of conservatism, insofar as, through his revolution, and as the child of revolutions a bone departed, that he wanted to bring this old system down. Bismarck didn't believe that Napoleon III was all that bad. He didn't believe he was particularly good either. He didn't believe that he was in any way the mirror of his uncle. But he also thought that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that Prussia had to deal with the France that existed. And because of this, they had to deal with Napoleon III. Otherwise, Prussia would always be akin to a vassal state to Austria. And to Bismarck, that was not acceptable. This is really the crux of Bismarck's ideology when it came to foreign policy at this time. His peers thought he was pretty much crazy, and many questioned his suitability for office at all, let alone a small position in Frankfurt at the head of the Prussian delegation there. But all of these qualities, all of these theories, we would nowadays call realpolitik, and even though it is impressive to look back on this approach to foreign policy from Bismarck's point of view, and see in it the genesis of what would come later, it was at this stage not fully fleshed out. Though Bismarck would make a lot of his pronouncements, and a lot of those famous statements such as blood and iron, or the idea that the only thing which separates a big state from a small state is state egoism. In other words, the idea that as a big state you should be looking out for only your own interests and no one else's. And in looking out for your own interests, You shouldn't worry about offending your neighbours by pursuing a policy with states that may be considered pariahs at best. Before we spoil any more of the story, I'm going to just jump into the beginnings of Bismarck's life here. When we talk about Bismarck being contradictory, perhaps the least controversial part of the Bismarck story is the first, well, 20 years or so of his life. So let's begin this part of our story now. Otto Edward Leopold von Bismarck Schönhausen was born on April Fool's Day, 1815. Straight away, we're greeted with a curious fact about the man. Was this birth date significant, considering how he would make many of his opponents appear as fools? The day of his birth was noteworthy, and the year of his birth was extra significant, because it was, if you know your history, if you know your dates, it's the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and the beginning of what Historians have deemed the long 19th century, which ended conclusively in 1914. In short, Bismarck was a kind of signal that an era had ended and that a new era had arrived. We can say this in retrospect, but at the time of his birth, there was little indication that this second son of a Pomeranian squire would make so much of himself as Bismarck did. Bismarck's parents were by no means remarkable. 
They were no different, really, from any other noble family which you'd find in any other European state at the time. Except, of course, for Bismarck's Prussian nationality and his younger heritage, which granted him a somewhat unique flavour. If you like your comparisons, you could argue that the younger core of the Prussian nobility were somewhat similar to the samurai of Japan, an elite core of military nobles who were supposed to fight to the end for the king, or in the Japanese case, the emperor. This comparison isn't perfect, but it gives us an idea of how Junkers saw themselves and how they viewed their responsibilities. But how was a Junker supposed to act, and what were these responsibilities? Well, fortunately for us, they were laid down by Frederick the Great in his so-called political testament. Frederick the Great, if you weren't aware, ruled from 1740 to 1786 as the King of Prussia. Frederick the Great was Prussia's most important king, and arguably its most important historical figure. And the only reason I say arguably in that sentence is because, well, Frederick the Great shares this stage with Bismarck. Frederick the Great might have brought his kingdom massive expansion and brought it essentially into the camp of the great powers, but look at what Bismarck did. And then ask yourself which was more impressive. Depending on whom you ask, some people will say Frederick, others will say Bismarck, but it's undeniable that both men were in the top tier of Prussian heroes, the pantheon of Prussian history and of German nationalism to boot. Other aspects of Frederick the Great's character were similar to Bismarck's too. He launched several opportunistic wars, and in the process of those wars, he massively expanded Prussia's power. Frederick the Great also happened to be something of a genius, and he knew how to harness the best qualities of this warrior, noble, Prussian younger class to his own ends. The best way to harness this class was to define their responsibilities and duties. And this is what Frederick did in his political will and testament, which was released in the 1750s. The Prussian nobility, Frederick the Great said, has sacrificed its life and goods for the service of the state, its loyalty and merit have earned the protection of all its rulers, and it is one of the duties of the ruler to aid those noble families which have become impoverished in order to keep them in possession of their lands, for they are to be regarded as the pedestals and the pillars of the state. In such a state, no factions or rebellions need be feared. It is one goal of the policy of the state to preserve the nobility. Frederick the Great established a legacy which none of his successors, not even Bismarck, could escape from. The story of the Kingdom of Prussia is one of incredible risk. Frederick the Great risked it all in 1740 when he attacked Austria and seized its Silesian province, thereby setting off a chain of wars which very nearly doomed Frederick to not just defeat, but also abdication and complete ruin. Prussia survived, though. Check out our episodes on the Seven Years' War to find out more. And almost because it survived, the legend of Frederick the Great endured with it. Frederick left Prussia greatly enlarged and empowered. He also gave her a national myth to build on, and a nobility to control and perpetuate the myth. What was this national myth of Prussia? Well, it included the idea, and we see Frederick explain it in the above quote, that the Junker class would rule, and they would defend the state from, well, the mob, but really anyone that wasn't a Junker. Because of Frederick's impressive military victories, and the position that he placed the military Junker class upon, it seemed as though the Junker class would be destined to rule into the foreseeable future. Frederick had left it a great platform from which to base its legitimacy, but 
Within three years of Frederick's death, this legitimacy would be put to the test. In France, the cultural and linguistic beacon of Europe, which Frederick actually felt more drawn to than Germany, revolution erupted in 1789. A few years later, all of the continent was in arms, and after a bumbling and pathetic foreign policy, King Frederick William III of Prussia, the grand-nephew of Frederick the Great, made the disastrous decision to declare war on Napoleon. The date was 1806, and a period of profound humiliation, so devastating but also so important for Prussia's sense of national identity, was about to begin. The Napoleonic Wars confirmed the predominance of France and the end of the Enchant Regime, which had ruled Europe since at least 1648, and these revolutions represented for many nations a point of no return. One of these nations was the German nation, which had been deeply affected by Napoleon's actions. It wasn't merely the defeats that he inflicted upon those German peoples, but the efforts that Napoleon made to simplify the mess of German states by combining them together in confederations. One of these confederations was the Confederation of the Rhine, and it proved so useful as a device for Napoleon that in 1815, during the Congress of Vienna, the confederation was re-established as simply the German Confederation, with Austria instead of France at its head. This resurrection and reimagining of the German Confederation for their own ends was the vision of Metternich, then Austrian foreign minister and soon to be chancellor once he invented that position. In addition, the Holy Alliance of Prussia, Russia and Austria was conceived of to preserve the old order and protect it against revolution. With these safeguards in place, it was possible to maintain a version of peace which lasted from 1815 to 1848, when new revolutions beckoned. These were not wholly peaceful times in Europe, though. An undercurrent of dismay and regret and shame in some places remained in Prussia. Some felt that Prussia's humiliations had not been properly swept away, while others chafed under the conservative, reactionary regimes which Metternich's own Austrian predominance guaranteed. For others still, a sense of commonality with other Germans moved them forward. What they dreamed of, what they envisioned, was a larger, a greater Germany, where all peoples of similar culture and language would join a super-German state. But there was a key issue which had to be overcome. What do we do about the competition between Austria and Prussia, the two most powerful states in the Germanies? Austria had the edge over its northern opponent, but Prussia at the same time could not be counted out. Was a great contest between these two states inevitable? Not so, said Metternich. Peaceful cooperation was far more useful to all involved. Just as Bismarck would later be the key to so many alliances, including a reworked version of this holy alliance, so too was Metternich the key to this old order. Once he was removed in 1848, then the real opportunity for change would come. In the meantime, the second son of that Bismarck family we talked about would have to grow up. And grow up, the young Otto did. This could be considered an era of what I like to call conservatism's counter-reformation. And Bismarck was thoroughly shaped by what he experienced. At first, the young Bismarck wanted to be a lawyer. This was a respectable, traditional career for the sons of younger families. Either that, or a career in the army, or in the state administration. As it happened, Bismarck couldn't really decide for himself, and he flittered between all three. 
As a child, he gave no real indication of his later brilliance. He was average in school, he showed no special talent for any subject, and he would later single out his teachers at these gymnasiums for their fondness for striking children rather than shaping them properly. Bismarck found that at the age of 12, he was actually more afraid of the teacher's disciplinary rapier than anything else. And in fairness, if my teachers had used the backs of swords to discipline me, then I would have been pretty afraid as well. Bismarck blamed his mother for sending him to these schools, but these schools, in his mother's defence, had come with great recommendations. He attended school with society's other great sons, but he didn't really excel in this environment, even though all things considered, he was as well-educated as one could be in Prussia at the time. Of more importance in shaping Bismarck's outlook on life than his schooling was his family, and Bismarck's family were effective, dysfunctional, and unique in different ways. His father was nearly 20 years older than his mother, and he was, by all accounts, a well-to-do, decent individual. His father's name was Karl Wilhelm Ferdinand von Bismarck, himself the fourth son of the Bismarck family, a family name which was older than Hohenzollern, thank you very much, and which had been in Pomerania for centuries. In later letters that he would write to his wife, Bismarck described his relationship with his parents. It was a relationship with its ups and downs, but it really seems to have affected his outlook on not just life, but other people's relationships. The simple way of putting it is that Bismarck had a strong, cold mother and a weak-willed but kind father, and this combination made him see this combination in other couples as well. It was a dichotomy that he strove to avoid with his own wife, and it was a combination which, when he saw it in other people, when he saw that the weak-willed man was ruled by a strong wife, he resented that person. Several relationships, including in the Prussian royal family, were coloured by what Bismarck believed was the weak man being unable to resist the wiles of his wife. A shameful thing, Bismarck believed, but it was something that he had seen, or that he at least believed he had seen firsthand. Nonetheless, despite the fact that he believed his father to be somewhat weak, he does make it clear that he did love him. I really loved my father, Bismarck wrote. When not with him, I felt remorse concerning my conduct towards him, and made resolutions that I was unable to keep for the most part. How often did I repay his truly boundless, unselfish, good-natured tenderness for me, with coldness and bad grace. Even more frequently I made a pretense of loving him, not wanting to violate my own code of propriety, when inwardly I felt hard and unloving because of his apparent weakness. I was not in a position to pass judgment on those weaknesses, which annoyed me, and yet I cannot deny that I really loved him in my heart. Bismarck's father seems to have provided the main source of unconditional love, which every child needs. Though Bismarck was evidently conflicted, as this extract shows, he needed his father's love and he appreciated it, but at the same time, he resented his dad for not being a stronger figure. Having seen his father as weak-willed and indolent, Bismarck seems to have also blamed him for letting those estates that he ruled over become unproductive and indebted. Ferdinand von Bismarck lacked much strength of character, a trait which Bismarck possessed in spades, domineering his friends and foes alike, and this difference between father and son seems to have made Bismarck unable to respect his father, even if he loved him. Interestingly as well, his mother had opposite problems to this. Wilhelmine Mencken was Bismarck's mother's name. 
Wilhelmine Mencken was the daughter of a privileged Junker family. She was part of the elite of Prussia. Her father had been royal cabinet councillor to Frederick the Great for crying out loud. And Bismarck seems to have gotten his political and administrative chops from her. He wrote on his mother, My mother was a beautiful woman who loved external elegance, who possessed a bright, lively intelligence, but little warmth. She wished that I should learn much and become much, and it often appeared to me that she was hard and cold. As a small child, I hated her. Later, I successfully deceived her with falsehoods. One only learns the value of the mother for the child when it is too late, when she is dead. The most modest maternal love, even when mixed with much selfishness, is still enormous compared with the love of the child. We'll note that Wilhelmine wanted her son Otto to learn much and become much. This would be true of Bismarck, of course. Perhaps he overachieved more than anyone else could have expected, but Wilhelmine would die before this was borne out. By 1839, when Wilhelmine passed away, Bismarck was still flittering between careers. He'd dropped out of law school, he'd taken up a job as a Landwehr reservist, and he would assume more responsibilities when his father died in 1845, and he inherited the Schoenhausen estate in Pomerania. And as a result of this inheritance, Schoenhausen was added to his Bismarck name. This was to distinguish between the different branches of the Bismarck family, because as we said, the Bismarck family was itself pretty distinguished and well-established, and he didn't want to get confused between which line of this family was which. We call him Bismarck for short because, well, life is too short, but for the record, Bismarck Schoenhausen is the correct version of his name. In any case, Bismarck did make something of a name for himself as a youth, but for all the wrong reasons. His college days consisted of fighting duels, joining radical societies, and flunking on his assignments. He wasn't exactly a promising picture, and his mother watched her dreams for her successful lawyer son go up in smoke. That said, though, Bismarck didn't waste all of his time. He allowed his formative years to shape him, perhaps more than is often realised. Historians have debated whether his views on women and other people's relationships were shaped by his own experiences of his parents, as we said. Otto Flans, one of Bismarck's best-known German biographers, has thus written, Some of Bismarck's habits and attitudes in later years may have stemmed from these early experiences. His contempt for men dominated by wives, his dislike of intellectuals, his hostility towards bureaucratic government, his late rising, his longing for the country and dislike of cities, especially Berlin, and his preference in agriculture for forestry. He never forgave his mother for ordering a stand of oak trees felled at the family estate in Nipov. We've already mentioned Schoenhausen, but there's Nipov as well, and this mention of several estates should remind us that Bismarck's family was wealthy. They possessed extensive lands, with the major Schoenhausen estate coming under Bismarck's personal rule after 1845. Other estates, like the above-mentioned Nipov, were inherited by his father from an uncle, and they were run by Bismarck's elder brother Bernard. In 1867, a grateful Prussia purchased another estate, Varzen, for Bismarck to settle into. These family houses, the lands which they included and the subjects or tenants who worked on them, all factored into Bismarck's development. He came to adore the country, and he longed for it when he couldn't be in it. He possessed the same attitude towards the peasant as his fellow Junker. He expected loyalty and reliability from them. 
Bismarck was quite good at running his estates. He reversed the poor financial state which his father had left the family in by economising and just being smart with his money, not through any massive innovations in agriculture. But after this event, Bismarck seems to have become concerned, at least on some level, with money. Despite appearances, despite the fact that they owned a great deal of land, the Bismarcks were not particularly rich in cash. And this lack of cash meant that Bismarck had to borrow, which meant he went into debt, which meant he became even more obsessed with money. This is an obsession that lasted for the duration of his life, because even when he wasn't worrying about having not enough money, he was imagining new ways to gather as much money around himself as he could. By the time he died in 1898, Bismarck would be the equivalent of a millionaire today, owning upwards of $80 million to his name. Bismarck's college years aren't all that important to examine, and more will be said on them in Age of Bismarck, that series we do in a few years, where we analyse his character more closely and delve into the different debates about whether his upbringing had all that much of an impact on his later decisions. But for now we can note that he studied law in Göttingen, and his character there began to develop. He met a man named Jonathan Lothrop Motley, an American student from elite Boston society who would become famous in his own right for writing a history of the Dutch Republic, which is still pretty good and readable today. Motley was fluent in German, but Bismarck already at this stage was showing his own affinity for languages, being fluent in English himself, after learning it from his friend Motley. Motley noted that, In precocity of character, in every respect, Bismarck went immeasurably beyond any person I have ever known. This American Bostonian historian, Jonathan Lothrop Motley, would serve as one of Bismarck's few genuine friends throughout the Iron Chancellor's life, and he would correspond with Bismarck regularly, sometimes at seriously odd times, as we'll see. Bismarck had made further connections as well. In summer 1834, he accompanied a friend to an interesting exercise, the sketching and surveying of Prussian landscapes for the benefit of those topographical maps which the Prussian army were then making. While accompanying his friend on this task, the 19-year-old Otto von Bismarck met Albrecht von Roon for the first time. Von Roon was then only a 31-year-old lieutenant and he was earning his stripes with this mundane topographical mission, but Roon would later go on to redefine the Prussian army and implement critical reforms as minister for war. These acts brought him the favour and friendship of several Prussian kings, but while von Roon was on the inside of Prussia's government, he also vouched repeatedly for Bismarck. Evidently, the 19-year-old Bismarck made quite an impression on Lieutenant Roon, an impression which would stand Bismarck in good stead through later years, especially when Bismarck angled for a position in the ministry, and eventually, when he aspired to be minister-president, Roon proved essential as an inside contact. Shortly after this, in a ball held in early 1835, Bismarck was on the list of young distinguished guests in attendance, and it was here that he met a young Crown Prince Wilhelm for the first time. Though he could charm and leave lasting impressions on contemporaries, interestingly enough, Bismarck was less successful in his private tasks. He was bored with university and he never qualified as a lawyer, preferring instead at the age of 22 to undergo a career change and apply for the diplomatic service. Now, this might seem like serious foreshadowing. Already here, Bismarck was embracing his 
inner sense of need to dominate and to rule in the diplomatic sphere. Well, actually, he wasn't doing this at all. The best way we can describe Bismarck at this point was something of a waster. He didn't really know what he wanted to do. And while he was idle, he was far more interested in declaring his love for random English aristocrats. Rather than focus all that much on his career, the romantic within Bismarck focused on his love life instead. In the summer of 1836, he declared his love for the daughter of an English gentleman who was about 20 times richer than him, only to get over her and then fall for another Englishwoman a year later in summer 1837 and convince himself in the process that he was engaged. He burned several bridges after this, but by January 1838, Bismarck was working in Potsdam in the civil service, a job which he also hated and which he was soon to abandon. In the meantime, he tried to avoid military service, since according to Prussian law, all Junkers had to serve for a single year. At this time, Bismarck was also burdened by his debts. In July 1838, he visited his mother and poured out his heart to her. The 23-year-old Otto von Bismarck was here very far indeed from the striking leader he would later become. At this point in his life, in July 1838, Bismarck was depressed, disenchanted with his experiences, overwhelmed by his debts, aimless in his ambitions, disinterested in the work he had undertaken, and, we have to emphasise, completely unsure of where the future would take him. Bismarck's mother, Wilhelmine, who had imagined to live through her successful sons, was now terminally ill, but she at least set Bismarck on the right path. Shortly afterwards, Bismarck's parents reorganised the family estates so that Bismarck could retreat from all these disastrous experiences in Berlin and everywhere else, and simply run one of these minor estates, which his father had inherited. This would at least give Bismarck direction and something of an income which he could build upon and improve. But Wilhelmine never saw this improvement take shape. She died just short of her own 50th birthday in the early hours of the 1st of January 1839. Bismarck was devastated, not least because he must have known himself to be a disappointment to her. Having lost her own father at an early stage, the unfortunate Wilhelmine had never reached the level of happiness or contentment that she craved. Her sons seemed more interested in squandering what small fortunes they had, and by all accounts her life was the equivalent of a tragedy. We cannot know exactly what she thought in her final hours, but we can be certain that Bismarck wished she lived longer, perhaps until he at least acquired his first political posting, so that he could have shown her that her faith in him had not been in vain. As matters stood in 1839, though, Bismarck had little option but to fulfil the family role of landed Prussian Junker, and in spring of 1839 he took up residence at Nipov, now in northwestern Poland, but then in the Pomeranian backwoods. Using new methods in farming which were then developing, Bismarck helped to get Nipov earning again. He was riding a wave of increased productivity which was sweeping across Prussia and Germany generally. It was equaled by increases in other spheres too, such as population. In 1816, Prussia's population was 23.5 million, by 1864, it was 38 million. Prussia was growing, and so were Bismarck's prospects. For the next few years, he fulfilled his younger duties admirably. He fit into his role well, and he effectively grew into an adult, leaving his mad younger days behind him, almost. 
As was the case with most Prussian Junkers, Bismarck was like a virtual king in his own estates, and he could essentially do what he liked so long as everything ran smoothly. As any other 20-year-old who had the keys to his own castle, Bismarck was able to enjoy himself. When he discharged his duties, he served on local Junker committees, and he also organised other aspects of his estate, but Bismarck socialised too. On one occasion, we're given a story where several friends of Bismarck's drank late into the morning. Bismarck knew he'd have to attend some meeting early the next day, so he warned them that he'd be waking them up early, but when it transpired that his rowdy friends had blocked the door so Bismarck couldn't wake them up as they tried to sleep off their hangovers, Bismarck did what any sensible man would do. He went to the courtyard of his own house and started firing into the room where these men were sleeping. Bismarck fired several shots into their bedroom, shattering the glass and sending pieces of plaster flying onto the bed. A friend recalled how a small white flag was poked out of the window so that Bismarck would now be able to see it. His guests then came downstairs, and a cheerful Otto never even mentioned this episode. During this period of his life, Bismarck read and wrote ceaselessly. He pretty much had nothing else to do once he fulfilled his duties. Already we see some clear signs of the Bismarck which was to come, most notably in his complaints of boredom. As he would come to realise several times in his later life, the life of a country squire might seem attractive, but his restless mind was bored within a day. Countless letters in the early 1840s complain of boredom, but also loneliness. So to break up this monotony, Bismarck made several trips to foreign lands. He went on holiday, basically. In 1842, he visited England for the first time, then a swirling centre of innovation, technology and wonder. Bismarck was very drawn in himself, writing, The politeness and kindness of the English exceeded my expectations. Even the common people are well behaved. They look modest and understanding when you speak. And speak, Bismarck did. He was now well versed in the English language, having learnt it from his American friend Motley. Bismarck was also fluent in French, a requirement for the more cosmopolitan Junker, but also for the curious reader, which Bismarck certainly was. With these three languages, English, French and German, a gentleman could get very far in the 19th century, but for Bismarck it wasn't enough. Here he displays a firm grasp of languages. The fact that languages came easy to Bismarck seems to be pretty evident if we look at the records he left behind. He displayed a firm grasp of languages from an early stage. He only needed to be surrounded by them for a short time to really get to grips with them. He learned Italian, Russian, Polish and several other languages. He wasn't the kind of person to claim fluency just for the sake of it. He didn't see any real pride in learning these languages, but to him they were useful. And as someone who enjoyed learning and wanted to grasp as much of the world as possible, learning languages was a handy way for Bismarck to do that, because they opened avenues into so many other areas. His fluency in all these different languages, though, meant that Bismarck's memoirs and correspondence can sometimes be a confusing mass of different languages and scripts. He liked to write his private thoughts in Russian, for example, and sometimes in correspondence when trying to make a point, he would state that point in English before writing it again in German. It might be possible to say that Bismarck loved languages because they opened up so many different doors for him. But while it might not be clear that Bismarck loved languages, something which he definitely did love, and there's no doubt about this, was food. Bismarck revealed in an extract explaining how food was served in England, and the attention to detail in this extract alone, and its tone of wonder and warmth, 
tells us an awful lot about Bismarck's priorities. Speaking again of England, Bismarck wrote, This is country for heavy eaters. They serve huge breakfasts with many cuts of meat, and at noon comes fish and an atrocious fruit tart. Soups are so strongly seasoned with white and black pepper that few foreigners can eat them. They never serve by the portion, because even at breakfast, the most colossal pieces of every sort of meat are available, and they put them before you to cut as much or as little as you choose without effect on the bill. Otto von Bismarck certainly loved his food, as his friends and visitors to his estates would later attest. Perhaps he could find someone to end the loneliness, and also to feed him. Was it time for Bismarck to get married? It was just at this moment that our developing Junker, bored and walking through his neighbour's estates, met yet another love interest, this time more important than them all. Unlike his previous love interests, Marie von Tadden is worth mentioning because of the sheer impact she had on the developing Bismarck. She made this impact by directly challenging the empty, bored, directionless young Junker on a professional, social and spiritual level. This spiritual awakening seemed the most important in hindsight, but at the time, it was Bismarck's emptiness and the aimless boredom which alarmed Marie von Tadden the most. She implored Otto to find a career, to stop complaining of boredom, and also to find himself. Normally the proud Bismarck would be immune, but critical remarks from the ones we love had the effect of making us think more deeply and effectively about ourselves, and Bismarck was no exception. Even though she married another, Bismarck regularly made the trip to their estate and remained on good terms with her husband as well. In May 1845, Marie von Tadden wrote to her friend about Bismarck. Otto has become much closer to me in these days than for weeks. We have reached out our hands to each other, and I think that it is not a temporary contact. You have never understood that I see so much behind his often cold elegance, so it may appear laughable to you that I have reached out for such a friendship, but it occupies me too much these last days for me to pass over it in silence. Perhaps it is the expression of a personal freedom which makes so attractive this friendship with a Pomeranian phoenix who is a prodigy of wildness and arrogance. Bismarck, now just over 30, was six foot four, handsome, bursting with energy, intelligence, and full of charm when he wanted to use it. His very potential was alluring, and it seems that Marie von Tadden was captured in this spell. Even she, as a married woman, could see that there was nobody like Bismarck within travelling distance of her. In fact, there was no one like Bismarck in the entire world. That Marie claimed to be capable of seeing beneath his austere coldness presents us with a useful image of the man who would later terrify his subordinates. But this Pomeranian phoenix, as Marie von Tadden saw Bismarck, was remarkable for other reasons too. Almost despite himself, he kept establishing useful connections with people that would later prove priceless. Many of Bismarck's most important connections were made through Marie von Tadden, above all in the circle of Christians which she maintained. As a pietist Christian, or born-again Christian for my American listeners, Marie was part of a small but significant group of Prussian aristocrats who served king and country enthusiastically and who were unquestionably pious and who followed the doctrine of Christianity to the letter. Her sincere faith gave her a stability and friendliness which Bismarck found attractive, but would the cold Bismarck be at all interested in tapping the source of Marie's happiness? 
Against all odds, Bismarck was interested. He became a self-professed pietist Christian, and in the process, he connected him to several Prussian VIPs who were among this group. Perhaps the most important people in this group of pietist Germans were the Gerlach brothers, Leopold and Ludwig von Gerlach, both of whom, Leopold particularly, came to have a critical impact on Bismarck's career. Ludwig von Gerlach was the intellectual and the lawyer, soon to be the judge, and Leopold was the senior military officer with the ear of the king. Both men were indispensable for their own reasons, and they were both indispensable for Bismarck's advancement. They would prove critical in recommending Bismarck to stand as a substitute for the session of the 1847 United Diet, a discussion which granted Bismarck his very first true taste of politics, a taste which he spent the rest of his life trying to satiate. Another critical connection was made through Marie with Marie's good friend Johanna, whom Bismarck would eventually propose to and marry after a short courtship. Though married, the main event which pulled Marie and Bismarck apart was the former's premature death at only 24 years old. Only a few months earlier, Bismarck's father also died in 1845, putting him in charge of the Schoenhausen estate, which provided him with his full name as Otto von Bismarck Schoenhausen, as we said. We might have imagined that the death of a woman that he had deeply loved but couldn't have would have made Bismarck crazier still, but in fact it drove him to propose to Marie's friend, Johanna, who Bismarck tracked down, and who, throughout the latter half of 1846, became the recipient, along with her father, of a remarkable correspondence, where the wild Junker tries to justify himself to his severe and pious future father-in-law. On a number of levels, Johanna was an odd choice for Bismarck to have as a wife. In comparison to the late Marie, she was not beautiful, intelligent, or particularly cultured. She hailed from an old, seriously religious family in the Pomeranian countryside. It was fair to say that Johanna was the polar opposite of Marie von Tadden. In many respects, Johanna was also the polar opposite of her dynamic husband. Despite these differences, love, or Bismarck's conception of it at least, conquered all, and Bismarck was engaged to Johanna in January 1847. By this point he was a busy man, and he no longer had any time to complain of being bored anymore. The combined work of his father's estates, with a new role as superintendent of Dyke or Dyke Reeve, made him responsible for protecting the low-lying lands along the River Elbe from flooding. Bismarck hadn't gotten this post on his own initiative, it was an honorary appointment, and it always went to the landowner in the district, but it was no less important for that, and Bismarck took it up in mid-1846. It was an important administrative post, because it gave Bismarck a taste of responsibility, and of how administrations worked in a state. The great test for Bismarck in this role came each year with the breaking of the winter ice. He had to be ready for the breaching of the embankments by these loose ice blocks, which would grind and shatter and rear up against each other. They would spill over the confined banks, and they could potentially break down the dikes. It was an annual stress which Bismarck endured, and he endured it by staying up all night, breaking up this ice manually and guiding it to a safer part of the river. Because of these responsibilities, though, Bismarck was kept away from Johanna more than he would have liked in the first months of their engagement. But he wrote to her often and at length even despite this. 
He now had an outlet for his energies. These energies remained considerable and consuming. He was almost required to satisfy this energy, or else he'd never be able to relax. This necessitated long walks, reading or drinking sessions, entertaining, riding or hunting, but never sitting still. Bismarck seemed terminally incapable of sitting still, and this nervous energy, once invested in a proper cause, such as his career and politics, enabled Bismarck to soar above the abilities of his peers. Bismarck's other significant attribute, intelligence, was already apparent, but the towering ambition would come shortly afterwards. During the spring of 1847 then, Bismarck was in a happy state. Having affirmed his connection to Johanna, he at least knew at the age of 32 that he was going to be a married younker, if nothing else. He spent a lot of time in his in-law's house because he had, after all, no real family to introduce Johanna to. And it was at this time of innocent housemaking that Bismarck sent his fiancée a letter of monumental significance. On the 8th of May, 1847, Bismarck wrote, Dearest, only, beloved Juanita, my better half, I want to begin my letter with every form of endearment I can imagine, because I need your forgiveness very much. I will not leave you to guess why, lest you imagine something worse, but simply say that I have been elected to the Landtag. There it was, as clear as could be expressed. The young, mad younger from the Pomeranian backwoods had just graduated into something representing adulthood. At 32, he had moved into a career which for the remainder of his life would represent his all-consuming passion. Jonathan Steinberg, Bismarck's most recent biographer, noted that even before they were married, Johanna was thus confronted with an inescapable fact about her husband-to-be. Politics would always be the third wheel of their relationship. Sometimes, Johanna would even be the third wheel in this relationship. While in ordinary circumstances, a seat on the Landtag, which was a regional assembly in Magdeburg, in Bismarck's case, this wouldn't have been exceptional for a younger, but these circumstances were anything but ordinary. You see, a few miles away in Berlin, the King of Prussia, Frederick William, had been mulling over an important fact. He knew that in order to get the railway loan he wanted, he would have to convene some kind of parliament. Frederick William conceived of this parliament, or United Diet, where all deputies who sat in their own regional land tags would be able to sit. Our man was now eligible to share the stage with some of Prussia's foremost voices, and Bismarck was determined from an early stage to drown out every last one of them. At this crossroads in his life, Bismarck had established several important guiding principles about himself. He had the intelligence which enabled him to find most things came relatively easy to him, certainly more than they seemed to come to others. He was an expert linguist, speaking as many as five languages fluently, a figure which would rise to nine before his death. He read and wrote tirelessly, and tirelessly would be the best description for him. Bismarck, as he was beginning to discover, possessed three traits which made for a famous combination. These traits being intelligence, energy and ambition. The ambition would come later, but those first two ingredients were critical. Bismarck's interests, when he did read, were largely in history, in political systems. He was also somewhat interested in gardening and estate management, and in many forms of literature, mostly of the English variety. 
Bismarck never really understood economics or what the growing industrial revolution meant for Prussia and he wasn't particularly interested in these things either. Even at the height of his powers, as minister-president, he was unaware of how Prussia had changed from a rural backwater into an industrialised booming centre of experimentation, innovation and productivity. Bismarck reaped the benefits of this transformation of Prussia, but it seems that he still saw Prussia and his fellow Prussians as mired somewhere in the 18th century, where land still ruled above all. So on top of this intelligence, which was formidable, Bismarck had the energy to pursue this intelligence and realise it. This energy was a subject in its own right. It could sustain Bismarck for countless hours. It enabled him to read and write at a ferocious pace, considered inhuman by others. It helped him get by as he worked sometimes through the night. Without this energy, which was likely a product of his strong constitution and good genetics, the six-foot-four Bismarck would have been less alluring to his contemporaries, and his body of work would have been less impressive. Because of his bursts of energy, Bismarck was always on some sort of mission, and if he wasn't, then he became consumed by another enemy, boredom, an enemy which he feared and which he escaped through indulgence, eating or drinking too much if he didn't have some avenue to apply himself to. His energy also made him seem powerful, but the negative side of this trait was that, again, if he lacked somewhere to invest this energy, it drove him mad. Fortunately for Bismarck's energy and for Bismarck's psyche, he determined to invest these energies in the greatest, most restless game of all, politics. And this brings us to the final vital ingredient in Bismarck's personality, that of ambition. Bismarck might not have appeared particularly ambitious in his youth. There was no indication that this man who went on leave during his work placement so that he could pursue a love interest, or who dropped out of law school because he didn't want to serve under people, would be made into much of anything. His mother certainly would have taken issue with the idea that her son was ambitious at all. To her, he seemed like he lacked ambition to do anything or to be anything. But this was part of his growing up process. In the mid-1840s, something changed within Bismarck, likely spurred by several deaths of people close to him, such as Marie von Tadden and his father. Now that he was alone in the world, or so it seemed, Bismarck turned his considerable energies and intelligence towards managing his estates, and thanks to those connections that he built up, Bismarck managed to land an inconsequential recommendation from the Gerlach brothers, which he used to stand as a substitute for the land tag of Magdeburg. This step was more important than Bismarck could possibly have realised, but we must ask whether Bismarck at this stage contemplated a political career at all. Why had he allowed his name to be put down as a substitute for this land tag? He must have had sufficient ambition to want a seat in this land tag, and we imagine that he must have been informed enough of the goings-on in the king's circle to know that these provincial assemblies would soon be given additional weight. Bismarck liked to present this whole affair as a happy accident, a tactic we'll examine later, but it stands to reason that Bismarck's intelligence enabled him to see what was about to happen. His energies made balancing all of his duties and this new position possible, and his ambition made him imagine life as a deputy to the United Diet, which Frederick William was soon to convene. Either way, I believe by 1847 we can discern these three traits, intelligence, energy and ambition, which Bismarck was to retain for the rest of his life. These three traits combined together gave Bismarck an edge over his rivals, 
and it is the best explanation for his meteoric and very unusual rise up the Prussian ladder, ahead of more experienced officials. These traits, combined with some vital connections, ensured that Bismarck's rise was possible. Without any one of these three ingredients, Bismarck wouldn't be the formidable figure that he is considered today. As Karina Erbach wrote, it is widely agreed and well documented by Bismarck's biographers that The turning point in Bismarck's life occurred in 1847, when he made a conscious decision to leave his Junker obscurity behind. Bismarck may have left Junkerdom behind, but he had not done so in vain. Instead, he swapped the silence and desolation which he claimed to adore for the mainstream political stage that he clearly found so intoxicating. Not only did his three key traits come together here then, we also see the emergence of the two sides of Bismarck which were to fight with each other for the rest of his life. On the one hand, his love of the quiet country, and on the other, his passion and his energy for ambitious political games. These sides clearly contradicted each other, and they provide just another reason for Bismarck's appearance as a ball of nervous energy during this period. He was so full of potential, anyone could see that, but he was also raw and untrained, and he was unsure of how to apply his winning traits for success. Tutelage and experience would show him how to do that, but for now, the burgeoning Bismarck waited for the hand of fate to pluck him out of the crowd. It was in May 1847 that, following the early retirement of one of their members due to sickness, the 32-year-old Otto Edward Leopold took his seat at the United Diet in Berlin. As we said, Bismarck wasn't even one of the primary candidates. He was mostly bored by his younger peers, and they distrusted him. But thanks to his connections, mostly with the Gerlach brothers, he had been labelled a substitute. In other words, he would take the place of another candidate should there be an emergency brought on by illness. This illness, as it happens, changed Bismarck's life. Had Herr von Braukitsch, the man Bismarck replaced, not fallen ill, then Bismarck never would have gone to Berlin, and thereafter he never would have become immersed in politics. It's possible to argue that had Herr von Braukitsch not fallen ill, we might never have heard of the name of Bismarck, and this was a fact which Bismarck himself admitted. No one would have heard of me in my rural retreat, Bismarck declared, if I had not become a member of the United Diet by chance. So Bismarck was going to get a seat at the United Diet, but what even was the United Diet? The United Diet was in itself pretty unusual. It had been conceived as a method of bringing together all the provincial estates or all the little miniature assemblies that existed in Prussia and having all those delegates sit in Berlin. It wasn't a parliament, though. King Frederick William was very eager to emphasise that, yet awkwardly, at the same time, while he didn't want it to be a parliament, he wanted those that sat at this non-parliament to be satisfied with it and not actually ask for Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Her parliament, even though parliament was what they wanted. The reason why Frederick William wanted those deputies to be satisfied with this non parliament united Diet was because he was fighting against the rising tides of liberalism and quests for democratization in Prussian politics. Prussian liberals, surprising though it may sound, because when we think of Prussians, we probably think of the seriously military, very strict, very austere individual who was probably serving in the army and probably had no time for art or culture or in anything other than serving the monarch to the end. But Prussians in the late 1840s weren't so clear-cut as this. In fact, the tide of liberalism seemed to be working so much against Frederick William the King that Frederick William believed the only real way to combat it was by kind of meeting them halfway. The idea of the United Diet really was to meet these people halfway, to hope that by giving them a portion of what they wanted, they wouldn't ask for anything else. They wouldn't ask for an actual parliament. They wouldn't, with this parliament, try to transform Prussia into really the constitutional monarchy of Britain, which was what, of course, the absolutist king Frederick William feared. 1848, which, don't forget, was only a year away, would shatter these half-hearted attempts at reform. But first, Bismarck would arrive in Prussian politics, and he made a stir from the very moment that he opened his mouth in his maiden speech. On Monday the 17th of May, 1847, history was made. The name Bismarck was first heard on a large stage, and it would never be forgotten again. But before we examine exactly what Bismarck said, let's consider what he looked like. Of course, we can look at the pictures of him, and Google Images is very generous insofar as there are images available of Bismarck at several different stages of his life, from his early days as a child to his final years as a wizened, grey old man. But sometimes, nothing serves us better when describing a person as do the effective, eloquent words of a historian. So, with that, we're going to let Edward Crankshaw take it away and describe Bismarck's appearance at this time. 32 years old, he was in 1847. And how did he look for that? Judging by what Crankshaw said, it was a mixture of good and bad. He was a tall man, Crankshaw said. Well over six feet. The great bulk was yet to come. 
The framework was there, the shoulders broad and powerful, but he was then narrow-waisted and long-legged. His hands and feet were small, his hands particularly delicate, and the bones of his head were small and compact, so that once his beard was shaved off, he had the air of a thoroughbred, an appearance enhanced by the flaring nostrils, the tucked-in chin, and very large, wide-set eyes, with an odd slant that suggested that, like a nervous horse, he could see too much, and yet not enough for comfort of what was going on behind him. When this long and striking figure unfolded itself, standing high above the assembly, the words which fell from his lips came out not in a powerful bass, but rather in a thin high tenor, a light baritone, one called it, a pipe, said others. The words were vitriolic, or coldly cutting, or bitterly sarcastic, or dismissive, but never shouted. His hearers would have felt more at home if he had shouted. They could have shouted him down. But about this contemptuous, pallid young man from the back blocks, there was a quaint, cold savagery, very hard to counter. The profile which Bismarck cast never ceased to flummox his adversaries, all of whom would require, with some exceptions though, a short period of time to get used to the Iron Chancellor's stance, his style of speaking and his appearance generally. The size advantage which Bismarck had over some of his adversaries certainly helped, and it only increased in impressiveness as the man grew older and fatter, which only served to make his profile more intimidating. But what had Bismarck actually said? It'd be best to hear it from the horse's mouth, as Bismarck wrote about this moment in his memoirs, saying, I combated the legend that the Prussians had gone to war in 1813 to get a constitution and gave free expression to my natural indignation at the idea that foreign domination was in itself no adequate reason for fighting. What Bismarck is referring to here is the idea that in 1813, two years before Bismarck was even born, Prussia rose up against Napoleon. This event had since become idealised in Prussian national history, with the majority of liberal deputies claiming that Prussians hadn't just risen against the French, but that they had risen against the French because they also wanted a constitution and an end to the absolutist government which had been supported by the French. It had been quite a spectacle, and in 1813 the king had called the Prussian people to arms. Many had answered the call and they had flocked to the colours. Bismarck's point, though, was that celebrating 1813 as some kind of birth of constitutional government, or as a moment when the enthusiasms of all democratically-minded Prussians were brought to bear, was a false point of pride. Prussians in 1813, Bismarck declared, shouldn't have needed the promise of a constitution, or of more liberal principles affecting their government, in order to rise up. The very presence of the French in their land since 1806, Bismarck insisted, should have been enough. Bismarck recorded not only the reaction of the deputies to this claim, but also how he reacted, a sign of things to come. My performance produced a storm, Bismarck noted. I remained in the tribune, turning over the leaves of a newspaper which lay there, and then, when the commotion had subsided, I finished my speech. Bismarck's decision to attack the Liberals on this point in his very first speech, and his reaction to their commotion when they reacted in a predictably negative way, by confidently turning over the 
leaves of a newspaper until everyone essentially shut up and waited to listen to him, might give us the impression that Bismarck was onto something. Maybe he'd touched a nerve, and maybe he was able to be so confident and ignore the commotion and read through a newspaper because he knew that he had his opponents on the ropes, and all of this in his first speech. Bismarck might want us to think this, but in the actual fact, Bismarck at this early stage was already displaying something of a knack for manipulation. He was a master of twisting his opponent's words, even at this early stage, and he had directed the ire of his speech towards, of all people, a well-respected veteran of these 1813 campaigns. And this well-respected veteran hadn't claimed that Germans had fought for a constitution, but instead that the Germans had fought harder because a constitution seemed to be in the offing. While this might sound like a small difference, it was a critical difference, and the politician in Bismarck, even in his first posting as a delegate to the United Diet, chose to deliberately ignore that difference. Another thing we should get to grips with is the fact that the commotion which followed Bismarck's claims, well, that big fuss wasn't necessarily because of what Bismarck had said, but because he had deliberately ignored what his opponent had said, and he had, transparently and obviously, manipulated the contents of the man's speech. Don't forget, this opponent of Bismarck's, and I'm not going to tell you his name because we don't want to get bombarded with names, but this man was a well-respected veteran of those Napoleonic Wars, and it was incredibly disrespectful for Bismarck to turn things around like this against that poor aged man, who probably would never have expected to be treated so badly, especially not by some young, random Junker who was only making his first speech himself. If you were to read, for instance, some theoretical handbook on how to be a good Prussian Junker politician in this United Diet, or how to be a good Prussian politician full stop, respecting your elders and being honest when making speeches would have been at the top of the list. It was all part of the lexicon of honour which existed at the time, and which will pop up several times in Bismarck's life. Now, Bismarck never claimed to ignore honour as an idea, and he very much bought into it himself. He would constantly talk about Prussia's honour as a state, and he would fight several duels himself in the name of his personal honour, and one of these duels we'll be looking at later on, so stay tuned for that. According to Edward Crankshaw, again, it wasn't just Bismarck's behaviour, but his insolent and disrespectful tone towards his elders, his evident lack of respect for Prussia's military veterans, and the fact that he tried here to undermine the service of those Prussian soldiers to the state. It was just something that you didn't do. But all of this will lead us to an important question, that being, what side of the political spectrum did Bismarck sit on? Was he, by virtue of his attack on the Liberals, a Conservative? It would make sense, because his Junker heritage recommended him for the Conservative side, and his hostile words and his argument that Prussia was worth defending on its own seemed to place him on the far side of the right. As we'll learn throughout Bismarck's career, though, appearances could be deceptive, especially when Bismarck wanted them to be deceptive. In my view, it seems that Bismarck's foremost aim at this point was to make a splash, to make an impact. And like he did in his college days, he rose to prominence in the public sphere by being known as 
the Mad Junker. Now, his antics were tamer in a parliamentary sitting, but he still set to work crafting for himself as loud a reputation as he could. Again, we're confronted with the question, to what end? It would seem that Bismarck wasn't merely angling for popularity, he was also looking for royal favours. You see, by arguing against the need for a constitution, it could be inferred that Bismarck was arguing in favour of the king, and of the king's right to rule without any limits or controls on his power. Bismarck, because of this, might have expected to be treated favourably by the mark, especially since the deputies on the conservative side were at this point massively outnumbered in the United Diet by their liberal counterparts. By identifying himself as the foremost conservative and a younger dynamic one to boot, unafraid of confrontation, maybe Bismarck hoped for some kind of royal recognition from King Frederick William. If so, Bismarck didn't get this royal recognition, and Bismarck records how the king proceeded to ignore him at every social function over the next few months in 1847. Bismarck even goes as far as providing the details of a really cringeworthy scene, where all of the court circle and a load of important politicians, and a load of less important politicians, which explains why Bismarck was there at the time, everyone was all lined up and the king was essentially doing his rounds. He was walking past each person in turn, shaking their hand and talking to them. Bismarck was the last in the line, just of happenstance, and when the king got to the second last person in the line, he abruptly wheeled away from Bismarck, didn't shake his hand, didn't talk to him, and the whole scene just, it's just a basket full of cringe, it just sounds horrible, and Bismarck must have taken the message, he must have felt that he'd erred in some way. He wrote in his memoirs that, I considered myself justified in supposing that my attitude as a royalist hotspur had exceeded the limits which the king had fixed for himself. In other words, Bismarck came to suspect that he had been too hardline and conservative even for the king, who was meant to be the captain of the status quo ship. It would be somewhat ironic and poetic that in trying to get all this attention by being seen to be as conservative and extreme as possible, Bismarck actually went too far and made himself an enemy of the king, who may have thought of him as too reactionary. Had this reactionary rant caused a bad first impression? Would Bismarck get the chance to make it up to his king by softening his tone? It didn't really seem like he would have the chance, because little more than a month after he had spoken, in late June 1847, the United Diet closed indefinitely. Frederick William's plan, don't forget, had been to appease those Prussians who were yearning for a proper parliament, by pulling this non-parliament, the United Diet, out of the dustbin of history and hoping that once a few windbags aired their grievances, they would all just fall in line and support his schemes. What schemes was King Frederick William angling for? Well, foremost among them was the approval of a loan to build a railway. But the deputies at the United Diet saw through this plot and they actually refused to grant him his loan unless the king formalised their gathering and gave it some kind of actual permanence. Frederick William, in a fit of rage, ordered the United Diet to close. There would be no season of politics for the upstart Bismarck. It is worth looking again at Bismarck's political stance during this two-month period of May and June 1847. 
before he adopted any real policy of his own, Bismarck was at his purest and at his freshest here, and whiffs of the contradictory nature of his political stance in the future were already being felt. Again, don't forget Bismarck craved publicity because he was trying to make a name, and he saw the United Diet as the best chance to make a name in politics. He wasn't content to be pigeonholed either, or to fit the stereotype of a Junker of the old school. Many Junker neighbours of his he couldn't stand. The only issue was he disliked the middle classes, particularly those Westphalian Germans who had been attached to Prussia in 1815, and with whom, understandably enough considering the geographical distance and cultural and traditional differences, Prussian Junkers had nothing in common. All they really had in common was the German language. At times, Bismarck seemed like he would out-conservative the conservatives, advocating in one breath support for punitive game laws which had been banned a century before, even during the time of Maria Theresa, for goodness sake. And then, in the other breath, he placed himself in the liberal camp by insisting that the United Diet should be convened at regular intervals rather than according to the will of King Frederick William, as the United Diet was then subject to. This might seem like a liberal attitude, to be requesting that some kind of organisation, some kind of law should be placed, which meant that the United Diet would meet regularly. But don't forget, at the core of this, Bismarck saw the United Diet as a means to an end. If the United Diet met only irregularly, once every few years, for example, or if it closed indefinitely, as it did at the end of June 1847, then the aspiring politician within Bismarck wouldn't have any platform where he could make his name and spew his rhetoric. His own self-interest meant that he was in favour of the United Diet continuing, even if it undermined the powers of a king, which as a Junker was pretty much anathema to how you were supposed to see the world. And certainly Bismarck gives enough statements to the effect later on in his life that he did want to preserve the absolutist nature of the monarchy at least to a certain extent, although at the same time he makes several statements to the effect that he was, in his heart, a Republican. So, just like so many other aspects of Bismarck's life, you have to weigh up the different parts of his statements and his claims and his rhetoric, etc., and try to make a judgement call. We're not going to do that yet, we might have to do that in the future. But for now, it's time to be a bit retrospective and ask what Bismarck had really achieved in this very short season of Prussian politics. To judge for us here, we've brought in A.J.P. Taylor, who wrote, At the end of June 1847, the United Diet was prorogued. Bismarck had made a name for himself in a narrow reactionary circle. He had high Tory principles, yet a gift of sharp expression that would have become a Jacobin. Perhaps his gift was a little too striking. Slow-witted squires distrust cleverness even when it is displayed on their side. With the deed out of the way, he was free to marry and go on a honeymoon. He met Frederick William IV at Venice and received the king's approval for his attitude at the deed. His future as a reactionary seemed secure. This last little extract from Taylor might seem somewhat out of the blue, at one point, Bismarck had been awkwardly ignored in court functions, and it seemed as though he had spoken too much and gone too far for the king's liking. But Bismarck explains all of this away in his memoirs, with the notable excuse that 
King Frederick William didn't really dislike Bismarck deep down. What he disliked was the idea of being associated with Bismarck's extreme views. So rather than show him any kind of generosity or show any kind of friendship towards him, which might be construed as the king supporting an extreme reactionary and thereby not supporting the liberals in that diet, Frederick William thought that ignoring Bismarck was the best policy, because by ignoring him, no one could accuse the king of supporting Bismarck's extreme views and thereby supporting the extremism which went along with them. In short, he seems to have seen Bismarck as something of a rabble-rouser, but as a rabble-rouser who could be used, as long as he was used in a covert way, and it couldn't be traced back to him. Bismarck doesn't seem to have really grasped the nature of this backhanded compliment, recording instead that, I became persuaded that I stood high in the favour of both the king and the queen, which may have been a bit too generous, but there was no doubt that Frederick William had noticed him, and noted that even at this early stage, Bismarck's confrontational tactics and relentless style of speaking singled him out amongst a room of stuffy yunkers and social revolutionaries. Perhaps, in Bismarck, here was a man that the old order could use to preserve its positions. Little did the king or anyone else realise that Bismarck had no intention, no intentions whatsoever, of being used by anyone. And now that he had his first proper taste of politics, he was hardly likely to give way for anyone's sake, not even for the sake of his king. Politics was put on hold for a while, in the summer of 1847, and really throughout the rest of the year, as Bismarck settled down to sort some things out in his personal life. As we've said, the personal aspect of Bismarck's life isn't something that's going to interest us too much here. We'll get into more detail on Bismarck's life in the Age of Bismarck series. Because in this series, I want to really focus more on the political, on the strategic, on the policy aspects of what Bismarck did. We will, of course, have need to talk about his character. But there's no real point in talking about Johanna in too much detail or about the children that Bismarck was fortunate enough to be blessed with. But it does us no harm at the same time to go on something of a honeymoon from politics ourselves and look at what Bismarck did here. In the summer of 1847, Bismarck married the 23-year-old Johanna von Puttkammer, and then he went on a honeymoon all across Europe, where they had the aforementioned meeting with the king and the queen in Venice. By the time autumn loomed, it did seem possible that if or when the king wanted to recall the united diet, Bismarck could be confident of his role within it. Already it seemed that many of the ultra-conservatives had flocked to his side, a fact which might surprise us. It says about as much of their desperation as it does of his ability for leadership, but it also says a lot about how fearful they were of the liberal tide at this point, a liberal tide which seemed so insurmountable in Prussian politics. Little did Bismarck or his peers realise just how insurmountable this tide was about to become. His honeymoon came to an abrupt end in the spring of 1848, with the United Diet still suspended, as the tide of revolution lapped at the shores of Berlin, which caused the city to erupt in revolt in mid-March. Suddenly in mid-March 1848, with the mob up in arms and the king trapped by their ferocious demands, 
Bismarck was granted a unique opportunity to prove himself, or so he thought. Like everyone else who lived through the eventful year of 1848, Bismarck was forced to come to terms with some hard facts, which included, gasp, the limits of his influence. Limits which, to the surprise of nobody but Bismarck, he would have to respect, as little more than a 32-year-old nobody from the Pomeranian Wastes who had made a pretty notable raucous speech a little while ago. Bismarck, much like his peers, would have to get in line, but Bismarck proved more unwilling than most to accept the lot he had been given. 1848 was a very important year, because it had the effect of shattering pretty much everything that had been established since 1815, and if things were not shattered, they were certainly changed, sometimes fundamentally, sometimes just a little change. It'd take too long for us to go through the details of all of the petty German princes, and the 39 cases where they had to adapt to survive. In some cases, these petty German princes would promise an awful lot to their populations, only to renege on these promises later. Instances like these were surprisingly common. It seemed as though German princes simply hoped that if they made a show of giving some form of liberal democracy, however watered down it might be, then the population would be happy. But they wouldn't have to go all the way, and once the population were given a bit of happiness, they would just forget all about their demands, and absolutism would be able to be continued. Of course, this was generally not the case, and as we'll see in some instances in some of these German princes, disastrous consequences could follow. Only 32 years separated these revolutions from the end of Napoleon in 1815, so even though 1848 and 1815 might seem like very distant dates, there were still people alive in 1848 who remembered what had happened in the previous Great War. And that Great War had established what must have seemed to them like a lot of truisms. One of these being that France was a revolutionary backwater, and that whatever government existed in France, it couldn't really be trusted, because it was only a matter of time before the mob overthrew it, and revolt was the new status quo. This seemed like a fairly reasonable suspicion for most of Europe to have of the French, because in February of 1848, the French king was forced from his throne, and he went into his English exile, never to really trouble Europe ever again. The revolutionary tide then began to swell even higher, and as the French people tried to imagine what their future would look like, interestingly enough, they looked to their past for inspiration, and there was a certain person walking around who embodied that past, better than anyone else that the French could think of, and that man was Louis Napoleon, soon to be the emperor of the Second French Empire as Napoleon III. While the contemporaries of this situation feared that France was about to do a Napoleonic Wars all over again, they found that unlike in the 1780s or 90s, now in 1848, they had problems of their own. The traditional bulwark to French power in Europe was the Austrian Empire, and Austria had serious problems of its own at this point. The man who was ruling Austria at this point had been in place at the close of the Napoleonic Wars. Prince Metternich was the Austrian foreign minister and chancellor who since 1809 had helped to shape Europe. 
he had invented the role of Chancellor for the record, and he'd served in that position since 1821. So this was a very important, significant national figure for Austria. It should go without saying that pretty much all Austrians disliked him, not only because he maintained a stern, solid grip on power, but also because the way that he held onto this power was pretty underhanded. Historians, as is their wont, can't really seem to agree all in all about whether Metternich was a good or bad influence for Austria. But that didn't really matter in 1848, because Metternich was on his way out the door. Metternich fled into exile, while Austria's client states rose in revolt. If you know the story of the Habsburg monarchy, and if you know the story of Austria-Hungary, then none of this will be news to you. But suffice to say, in 1867, Austria became Austria-Hungary, when the Austrian Emperor was forced to compromise. He pretty much couldn't beat back the tide of Hungarian nationalism, and he had to compromise with them, rather than try and conquer them. That was 1867 though, and in 1848, the Austrians believed they could squash the Hungarians. If only they had some foreign help. More on that in a little bit. But it wasn't only in Austria's client states that trouble was brewing. In the Hofburg, the Habsburg's imperial palace in Vienna, the current emperor, the ailing Ferdinand, gave away and was forced into abdication. He made way for his nephew, Franz Josef. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is Franz Josef of Austria-Hungary, who would lead his empire into World War I. So when you talk about emperors and kings and queens and staying power, you often think of Victoria in this period, but Franz Josef had a pretty good claim on that himself. Considering the fact that he came to power, he came to the imperial throne a decade after Victoria did, and he was still in power a decade after Victoria had died. So, pretty much equal in that respect. I'm not sure if there's an official record going on, but as far as I'm aware, Franz Josef takes the cake. His rule would start off reasonably strong, considering its shaky foundations, but most of us know Franz Josef, if we do know him at all, we know him for being not exactly the most successful of Austrian emperors. But Austria wasn't the only state to endure some kind of revolt. Swiss, Swedes, Romanians, Poles, all of these peoples mounted some kind of demonstration or revolt, and in the case of many of them, they weren't actually in possession of their own national state, the Poles being the most obvious example, but also you could find Czechs, Italians in search of unification, Germans in search of the same thing, We've already seen the Hungarians, and we mentioned the Romanians there, so a lot was going on. A lot of nationalism was coming to the fore, but it wasn't just nationalism. It was also a desire for new types of government and for an end to the old way of doing things. Sometimes the conflicts were a bit complicated. Along the border with Denmark, for example, you had the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, and they revolted in fear of their incorporation into Denmark. That incorporation would have offended the mostly German population that lived in that area. By 1852, with these duchies defeated by the Danes, and pretty much capitulating, the Danish king promised not to incorporate them, and the status quo was pretty much preserved, even though few people were happy at the time. It might seem a bit random that I'm going into any kind of detail with this, what exactly does Denmark have to do with Bismarck? Well, if Bismarck wasn't aware of it now, then he would happily take advantage of the unrest, which followed a revival of this troublesome Danish question in 1864. Back in Berlin, closer to home for Bismarck, 
a terrible scene followed on the 18th of March 1848. On that occasion, Prussian soldiers fired on demonstrators who had gathered around King Frederick William's palace. In fairness, they had pretty much blocked all the exits, but they weren't exactly exhibiting any violent tendencies. The soldiers, one of whom fired first, set off the rest of them, and before you knew it there was a massacre right in front of the king's doorstep. Citizens withdrew into the streets and they tried to get away from the palace, They also erected barricades and they spread word of the actions of the already hated soldiers and these soldiers had never done much to ingratiate themselves to the average citizen. Don't forget as well, on top of all of that, most of the officer corps in the soldiery were made up of the nobility. You wouldn't find many peasants rising all that far in the army. The peasantry, as was the case before and as would be for some time, some people say it's still the case, but the peasantry were the cannon fodder and they didn't tend to rise much above their station. Anyway, back in Berlin, and as tensions mounted, the generals urged the king to flee the city. If he didn't leave the palace, there was no guarantee that the generals would be able to protect him. What if the citizens became emboldened and tried to rush the palace, armed with whatever they could get their hands on? They advised him to go to Potsdam. Potsdam was pretty nearby Berlin, In fact, it was bordering upon it, and nowadays the two cities are pretty much side by side. It's kind of hard to distinguish the two of them, and it gets a bit confusing when you try to do so. But take it from me, at this point, the two cities were far enough away that his generals believed if King Frederick William did go to Potsdam, they'd be able to take care of him. After the king went to Potsdam, the generals told him they would take Berlin back through bloody street fighting if necessary. They'd dismantle the barricades and arrest anyone or shoot anyone who stood in front of them. At this point, though, Frederick William was unwilling to dilute his powers or prerogatives, and he made it plain that he would consent instead to recall the United Diet that he had dissolved the previous summer, on the understanding that these deputies would then help him restore order. This sounded nice because he was using civilian government officials in order to bring about peace in Berlin, but would it actually work? That was the question that remained to be answered. But on the evening of the 18th of March, in a speech addressed to my dear Berliners, Frederick William appeared to concede to the citizens' demands. There was some confusion about exactly what he had agreed to, as we'll see later on, but the impression of the general in command of the soldiers stationed in Berlin decided to pull his men out of Berlin as a result of this speech. Whether it had been a miscommunication, an accident, or a deliberate action, suddenly the Persian king was all alone. Alone in his palace, destined to face the growing number of citizens who swelled outside his residence, fully aware that he was no longer protected by those soldiers who had once fired upon them. Unsurprisingly, they weren't in a particularly forgiving mood. Come down and salute the dead, these citizens demanded, and King Frederick William had run out of options, so he was forced to oblige. King Frederick William then walked bareheaded among the angry crowds. He examined the bodies of the dead, as requested by the citizens, who had only been shot down a few hours before by Prussian soldiers with itchy trigger fingers. This wasn't even the end of the king's ordeal. He was persuaded to hand authority to a civilian militia, and then he led a very odd procession to Berlin's university. When he got there, he made several speeches, and he proclaimed the sanctity of the ideal of what it means to be German. He proclaimed that from now on, Prussia merges with Germany, 
but it was very vague about how this would actually be achieved. For the record, on his arm was the tricolour armband of the nationalist Germans. You might recognise it as the tricolour German flag. Black was intended to represent foreign oppression, red was meant to represent the blood of battle, and gold was supposed to represent victory and freedom. This tricolour was a powerful symbol, and it was also a pretty striking sight. It surely suggested the end of Prussia as an absolute monarchy in a sea of other liberal states. Don't forget as well, returning to the issue of the tricolour, it was the French who unveiled their tricolour a generation before, during the height of the French Revolution. So for those Berliners, or those Prussian citizens who weren't all that well informed about what was going on in Berlin, the idea or the news that their king would be marching with a tricolour around his arm, it would have caused a lot of confusion, and in some cases certainly a lot of panic. One man who did not panic was Bismarck. He entered Potsdam on the 19th of March, this being the day after the king had bowed to the people. And the situation in Potsdam was akin to a political apocalypse. Now Potsdam not only being near to Berlin, it was also the official residence, the traditional residence of Prussian kings until 1918. Bismarck had gone to Potsdam to report to the generals that were assembled there. These were the same generals who only a little while ago had abandoned Berlin because they thought that the king had asked them to. Bismarck's plan sounds crazy because it was. He planned to enlist himself and his army of peasants, which he had recruited from his own lands, and he planned to use this army of peasants, marching at the head of it, probably on a white horse, knowing what Bismarck is like, and he intended to march into Berlin, free the king, and put down the mob just like that. As the generals heard Bismarck's scheme, no doubt standing there agape as the ridiculousness of it dawned on them and they realised this guy was not exactly going to help them, one of them spoke up. His name was General von Prittwitz, and Prittwitz had the distinction of ordering the shooting of several civilians outside Frederick William's Berlin Palace, but he soon sobered up the agitated Otto. Send us none of your peasants, Bismarck records Prittwitz as saying. We don't want them. We have quite enough soldiers. Rather, send us potatoes and corn, perhaps money too, for I do not know whether the maintenance and pay of the troops should be sufficiently provided for. If auxiliaries come up, I should receive, and should have to carry out, an order from Berlin to drive them back. At this, Bismarck interjected. Then fetch the king away, Bismarck said, as if suggesting that it was as simple as removing the king from danger and storming the civilian barricades. And Pritwitz had an answer for Bismarck. He declared, There will be no great difficulty about that. I'm strong enough to take Berlin, but that means more fighting. What can we do after the king has commanded us to play the part of the vanquished? I cannot attack without orders. As far as the generals were concerned, they were neutered. They had no orders, and it was not their place or their job to intervene in what was now a political matter. Certainly, unless the king sent for them, they were not about to move and risk their lives on the civilian barricades. Bismarck would later record, in a story about himself and General Pritwitz, that the general confided in him about the confusion which had led to the evacuation of soldiers from Berlin. In other words, he clarified why he felt that he had to leave Berlin following Frederick William's speech, when it was very likely that Frederick William hadn't wanted the soldiers to leave Berlin in the first place. What had caused this confusion? 
Well, according to Pritwitz, or at least according to what Bismarck claims Pritwitz told him, Pritwitz was confronted with a civilian minister of state who claimed that in the course of the king's speech, Frederick William had ordered that all public places be evacuated. Is the palace square a public place or is it not? This civilian minister challenged Pritwitz, adding, I command you to evacuate the palace square. What else could I do but march off? Pritwitz asked Bismarck, who, we can imagine, would have scrambled onto his metaphorical high horse as he claimed that, I should have considered it best to give a sergeant the order, arrest that civilian. To this, Pritwitz replied, It is easy to prophesy when you know. You judge as a politician. I acted exclusively as a soldier at the direction of a minister actually in power who relied upon a proclamation subscribed by the sovereign. Indeed, Bismarck was thinking as a politician and from an early stage, as we can see here. According to his understanding of how Prussia worked, you had a hierarchy. First there was the king, then there was the army, then there was the jumped-up civilian, and no developments should challenge this hierarchy. This was, after all, the way things had always worked in Prussia, so why should matters change now simply because the mob insisted that they should? Overall, Bismarck was undeterred by the setback of failing to get Pritwitz to listen to him. He rode into central Berlin with a view to visiting the king and to try and speak some sense into him personally. We might wonder at exactly who Bismarck imagined he was. Like, where did he get off thinking that he had the right of all people, some 32-year-old nobody, that he had the right to go into Berlin, find the king and bring the king to his senses, save Prussia single-handedly? The whole thing was ludicrous. But don't forget, Bismarck had reached the impression the previous summer that King Frederick William was fond of him. They had dined together in Venice, and it was a scene which must have seemed now like a distant memory compared to the tense atmosphere of revolutionary Berlin. As he arrived at the king's residence, Bismarck discovered that he was not as popular as he might have liked. Frederick William refused to see him, and according to Frederick William's wife, the king hadn't slept for days. A king must be able to sleep, Bismarck responded, and moved to a plan which, really, he never should have thought up in a million years, and even if he had thought of it, he never should have expressed it and made it public, certainly not to the people that would affect the most. To understand why Bismarck's plan was so ridiculous, we need to look at the situation in the Prussian royal house at the time. King Frederick William in 1848 was childless and there was no real chance of him having any children of his own. This didn't necessarily matter though because he had a younger brother, William, who we'll call Wilhelm to try and avoid any confusion because there's a few Williams that pop up, Frederick William among them, and I think it's just easier to call him Wilhelm and be done with that. Wilhelm also had a younger brother called Frederick Charles and both had attributes to recommend them. So why not get the constrained king, Frederick William, to abdicate in favour of one of these brothers, preferably Wilhelm, who was a traditional Prussian officer of the old school, had the support of the army behind him, if nothing else. Frederick Charles was a bit of a libertine, and he even confessed that he was too young to take up the position, although, according to Bismarck's account, he was pretty tempted by the offer. Bismarck was then informed that Prince Wilhelm had escaped to England in the face of the furies of the mob, so that pretty much meant that Wilhelm was out of the running. No matter, 
Bismarck declared to Wilhelm's stunned wife Augusta, Don't you have a perfectly healthy young son called Frederick, who's only 15? He'll do, won't he? So, now that I've laid it out, you can hopefully see how crazy all of this was. Bismarck was suggesting to do nothing less than usurp the king's authority, usurp that of his brother, usurp his younger brother, and if that didn't work, then go for the nephew of the current king instead. To do this, Bismarck would have to bypass some seriously important and traditional channels of authority in the Prussian monarchy. This was something that you just didn't do. You didn't do it as a member of this royal house, and you certainly didn't do it as a civilian. It was tantamount to treason, but Bismarck wouldn't have seen it that way. He would have seen it as using his imagination to try and get this royal house out of the pickle it was in. You also need to take a moment to consider the other people involved in this scheme. Augusta was the wife of Wilhelm, so the sister-in-law to Frederick William, if you want to look at it that way. And it is at this point Bismarck claims that Augusta developed a deep-seated hatred of him. From this point onwards, we see Augusta being mentioned several times whenever anything went wrong for Bismarck, whenever any particular official got a promotion before him, or whenever any particular figure just seriously annoyed him, we see Augusta being mentioned, whether it was true or not. For sure, Augusta did have contacts and she did have people actively working in her interests, But that is because Augusta boasted a considerable pedigree all of her own. She was a niece to two Tsars, and she was granddaughter of Catherine the Great. Her loyalty to her brother-in-law, the king, had to be considered, and her hostility to her younger brother-in-law, Frederick Charles, was also a well-known fact. Frederick Charles, as I said, was regarded as a bit of a libertine, which is a nice way of saying that he was a bit of a waster and the black sheep of the Prussian family. Contrary to what Bismarck claimed, this incident didn't make Augusta dislike him. She had actually already disliked Bismarck in some respects beforehand. She had heard his initial speech and wasn't particularly impressed by it, and she considered him a radical firebrand reactionary, someone who might be useful in difficult circumstances, but someone who was very hard to like, and certainly should never ever be trusted. This incident confirmed all that she disliked about Bismarck, Only someone with a temperament like his, a temperament she despised, would have concocted such a ridiculous, impractical scheme. Bismarck would effectively defend this scheming after the event by claiming that since Wilhelm succeeded his elder brother anyway, there wasn't really much difference between what he was proposing and what actually happened in the fact. But there's a very big difference between letting nature take its course and getting in there with a proposal to usurp your brother or both of your brothers. Or, in the case of Frederick, the 15-year-old son of Wilhelm, it was doubly ridiculous because Frederick would have had to first usurp the authority of his uncle, the king, and then he would have had to usurp the authority of his father, who was next in line, all because his father had thought that it would have been better to go to London and wait this whole thing out. Why would that disqualify him from succeeding to the throne? In any case, with the failure of this scheme, Bismarck planned to return to his estates and to supply that food that had been requested by General Pritwitz. True to form, though, Bismarck didn't stay still for long. He flittered back and forth into Potsdam and Berlin, and he tried to gauge information about the unfolding situation. And, at the end of the day, he wanted to return everything to order, so he was trying to see what he could do. 
The king made his own contribution to this end, and on the 25th of March, he gathered around his generals and effectively told them that he would be proposing a constitution. At this point, he asked for the loyalty of those present, and after some protest, they gave him this loyalty. They gave him their assurance, that is, the army did, that they would not contest his decision to give the people of Prussia a constitution. Bismarck happened to be present at this meeting where King Frederick William asked the cream of the Prussian officer corps for their loyalty. And according to Bismarck, Frederick William said, among other things, I have never been freer or more secure than when under the protection of my citizens. Bismarck then says that, There was a murmuring and a clash of sabres in their sheaths, such as no king of Prussia in the midst of his officers had ever heard before, and I hope will ever hear again. Bismarck records that he was deeply grieved after this incident, because to Bismarck it seemed as though the king had lost, he had capitulated to the people, given them a constitution, and now liberalism would win. A week later, on the 2nd of April, the king convened the United Diet once more, this time to make way for the new constitution, and to plan for elections to a new parliament that would serve Prussia. In Bismarck's view, this seemed like his last chance, As a firebrand reactionary, could he really expect to be elected to any proper kind of parliament in this increasingly liberal country? His peasants might have decided to fight for him when under the glaring impression of their overlord, but would the rest of Prussia really follow suit? With this sense of fatalism in mind, perhaps believing he had nothing to lose, Bismarck tried to seize at the chance to protest in as public a way as he could at what had just happened not just to the country, but also to the king. Prussian tradition had been ruined, and the king had been humiliated. Bismarck, in effect, was saying, I hope you people are happy, look at what you've done now, I'm not going to be part of this. Bismarck's feelings in this direction must have increased even further when he saw that one of the first items on the agenda of the United Diet for the 2nd of April 1848 was to approve a vote of thanks to the king, for acceding to the will of the people and generously giving way to avoid bloodshed and to reform the Prussian kingdom. In Bismarck's view, this was all too much. It looked like celebrating what he interpreted as the end of the Prussian monarchy. And he wasn't just being dramatic. Well, he was, but he was willing to be dramatic on a very public stage. These weren't concerns that he communicated privately or quietly. Oh no, quietly and privately was very far indeed from Bismarck's style among other things, on the 2nd of April. While standing before the United Diet in what he believed, what could well be his final chance to speak on a public stage, Bismarck said the following. The past is buried, and it is a matter of more poignant grief to me than to many of you that no human power can raise it up again, since the crown has itself thrown the earth upon its coffin. But if, constrained by the force of circumstances, I accept this, Nevertheless, I cannot bid adieu to my activity in the United Diet with a lie on my lips that I rejoice and am thankful for what I cannot but consider at the very least to have been a mistaken course. Bismarck's speech could well have lasted longer, but then again, Bismarck at this point believed that his life was basically over, or that his political life was over, and that at the very least, Prussia was about to undergo some form of fundamental change. I would have said more, Bismarck noted in his memoirs, but my emotion made it impossible to speak any longer, and I burst 
into a paroxysm of tears which compelled me to leave the tribune. For several weeks after this, Bismarck stayed at home in his estate at Schoenhausen. As a last-ditch, futile protest, he added the Vaughn to his surname, which he had removed during his school days. Now, Otto Edward Leopold von Bismarck was determined to be a proud Junker, unafraid to be true to himself or his conservative principles, and he didn't care if you knew about it. If this was to be the end of Prussia as he knew it, then at the very least Bismarck was going to go down swinging. Many in the United Diet could be forgiven for thinking that this teary speech was Bismarck's final act. Now this reactionary official would retire to the Pomeranian wastes and they'd never have to hear from him or about him ever again. Many must have thought, wrote one of Bismarck's biographers Edward Crankshaw, that this was the young Junkers' swan song as a politician. They did not think it for long. Of course, this was not the end of Prussia as Bismarck knew it. That was all a little bit dramatic. Frederick William grew in confidence over the summer, and he proclaimed his willingness to have a parliament, but not if this parliament usurped his authority. He quietly dissolved the increasingly radical United Diet by November, and the Liberals began to find it hard to act as a core of Conservatives began to rally around the King. The King, of course, still held the most power. It wasn't as though a civilian militia or a civilian government were now ruling Prussia in his name. On the 5th of December 1848, Frederick William approved of a new constitution which reinforced the position and prerogatives of the king, but it also installed a parliamentary system at the heart of Berlin. This parliamentary system would include an upper house, where delegates appointed by regional elites would sit, but it was the lower house, at the Landtag, where a complex electoral college brought those eligible to sit, and this, interestingly and surprisingly, after all that we've heard, was where Bismarck planned to act. You see, by February 1849, Bismarck had successfully campaigned for a seat in this new house. And I know we said before that there was no chance of him getting this seat, but Bismarck had friends in high places, one of these friends being the Gerlach brothers, Leopold and Ludwig von Gerlach. These were two staunchly conservative figures on the right wing of Prussia who would first become impressed with Bismarck following his speech in the United Diet in May 1847. Now, as would be the case many times again in the future, the support of the von Gerlachs paid dividends. Bismarck's apparently rigid, anti-democratic principles would not supersede his burning desire to make a name for himself on the political stage. To do so, he would need to be in Parliament. And if being in Parliament meant stamping on the crown of Prussia throwing dirt on the coffin of Prussian pure absolutism, then Bismarck would do it. During these turbulent months in 1848-49, Bismarck didn't stray very far from Berlin or from the king's orbit. Evidently, Bismarck knew something that the king's royal circle did not. He thought he had something unique to offer Frederick William, although he did resent Frederick William at the same time for his weakness and his willingness to give in to the mob even though paradoxically he should have been thanking Frederick William, because if not for the king giving in, Bismarck wouldn't have that seat in Parliament which effectively made his name. 
What was the king to do with this loud subject of his? It's kind of remarkable in a way that he didn't decide to censor him then and there. He would have been well within his rights to do so as the king. He could have exiled him anywhere that he wanted to. But perhaps there was something that Bismarck could offer the king. For someone so concerned with the crown's honour, Bismarck went out of his way to express the view that Frederick William had doomed his dynasty and that Prussia was effectively over as a kingdom unless the king would find his courage. If Frederick William found all this hard to stomach, he would have, perhaps deep down if he dared to admit it, agreed with Bismarck on some level. Frederick William was, after all, behaving quite unlike the Prussian absolutist kings of old, and it would be futile to admit that he wasn't going against the grain somewhat in giving these people a written constitution, as though a piece of paper could somehow come between the Prussian king and his divine right to rule over his subjects, a God-given right, don't forget. Nonetheless, after Frederick William did find his courage, he proved to be a pretty effective politician in his own right. By conceding a parliament, but retaining his own powers and prerogatives and claims to divine right, Frederick William ensured that the Liberals would be given a voice and a platform on which to project this voice, but that that voice would not be able to grant them automatic power. At the end of the day, no matter how many deputies the Liberals managed to get in the Landtag, it would be the King who chose his own government. The King's voice would be final, and that's an important fact to bear in mind when several years later, Bismarck himself seems to be angling for a position at the very tippy-top of the Prussian administration. Only the King could give it to him, so only the King really was worth lobbying. Bismarck claims that Frederick William's younger brother and heir Wilhelm was mindful of what he had done and that on one occasion in early June 1848 he found Bismarck, he literally picked him out of a crowd and thanked him for acting on his behalf. This mention of Wilhelm in the story of the royal succession was significant and it's one of the many examples in Bismarck's story of the kind of foreshadowing which would become pretty much legendary. Little could Prince Wilhelm of Prussia know, of course, just how pivotal his relationship with Bismarck would be one day. For this reason, it's probably worth detailing the very first meeting between the man and the master. Now, it depends on whom you ask which one was Bismarck and which one was the king. But before he was King Wilhelm, before he was Emperor Wilhelm, the first emperor of the German Empire, he was the Prince of Prussia. And in the winter of 1834-35, to 35, when Bismarck was only 19 and the prince was pushing 40, the two of them met in pretty unremarkable circumstances. The occasion was a court ball in Mecklenburg and Bismarck was training to be a lawyer at that stage, so he was dressed in the uniform of a law student. Frederick William noted on Bismarck's height and he commented that the Prussian Department of Justice must be recruiting based on the standards of the guards. An interesting quip which alluded to the tendency of some Prussian kings to select recruits for their regiments based on their height alone. After having a chuckle about this joke he had made himself, Prince Wilhelm asked Bismarck if he had ever considered a career in the military. I had the wish, Bismarck claimed he said, but my parents were against it because the prospect was too unfavourable. Prince Wilhelm then replied, The career is certainly not brilliant, 
but the judicial career is not more so. This was advice Bismarck seems to have heeded. He didn't remain in law school for very long after this conversation, although that had more to do with his own inclinations than the opinions of the Prussian prince. Such a fleeting, innocent conversation suggested completely nothing of what was to come between the two men, but their relationship from the moment Bismarck would become Prussian minister-president or chancellor or prime minister or whatever you want to call it, when minister-president was the Prussian name, but he became minister-president in 1862, and the two men would go on to define Prussian, German and then world history until Wilhelm's death in 1888. Historians are unanimous in agreement that Bismarck excelled because he had the confidence and support of Prince Wilhelm, soon to be King Wilhelm, and eventually, despite his own objections, which we'll get into, of course, Emperor Wilhelm I. Bismarck would give him all these rewards and prestige in return for a license to rule the Prussian and then the German government. But all this was a long way away during that unremarkable winter meeting of 1834-35, and it seemed somehow further away a decade later, before Bismarck had acquired the democratic legitimacy which he needed to retain his position on the Prussian stage. Interestingly, Bismarck notes that while Wilhelm and his wife kept him in their confidence and regularly asked him to dine with them, their son, Frederick, was harder to figure out. Indeed, in time, Frederick would represent one of the greatest founts of opposition to Bismarck, and once he married the first daughter of Queen Victoria, also called Victoria, Frederick and Victoria Jr. began to style themselves as the unofficial leaders of German liberalism, thereby making them the unofficial leaders of the opposition to Bismarck. No one could have imagined that the Marshal Wilhelm would live to age 90, of course, and that he would die in 1888 to be succeeded by Frederick but a Frederick who was terminally ill. Frederick died within four months, and he was succeeded by the much more famous, for all the wrong reasons, Wilhelm II. This story is, of course, familiar to a great number of you, but it serves as yet another case of what might have been. Had Frederick not contracted throat cancer from years of smoking, could he have led Germany into the 20th century as a liberalised ally of the British, with the daughter of Queen Victoria by his side? In such a way, could individuals have the power to completely redefine history? But of course, you know all that, dear listener. That's why you're currently listening to a show about one of the most influential historical figures that the world has ever seen. Throughout 1848 and 1849, as Bismarck was attempting to fashion a new role for himself in a rapidly changing Prussia, Several hundred miles away at Frankfurt, history was being made. The Frankfurt Assembly was gathering in a revolutionary mood, and it had revolutionary intentions. Just at the point in May 1848, when the tide of change seemed to be consuming all of Europe. But why were these revolutionaries gathering under the banner of a Frankfurt Assembly? Well, the goal of this group was nothing less than unification. All of the German states coming together as one to form a federal union of all the Germans, and to fulfil the national dream which so many Germans had. And which Napoleon had done his part to awaken, and which romantic nationalism had kept up as a dream since. We can draw from the historian George O. Kent, who wrote on the composition of this Frankfurt Assembly, 
and he noted as follows, that within the Frankfurt Assembly there were 49 university professors, 40 school principals and teachers, 200 jurists, 35 writers and journalists, 30 merchants and industrialists, 26 clergymen and 12 physicians. There were certainly long, learned debates and numerous committee meetings, but the establishment of parliamentary procedures, the drafting of a federal constitution, the discussion of fundamental rights and the organisation of a provisional federal executive had never been discussed in Germany on a national level before. These were topics and measures that could not be hurried along. They couldn't be hurried along and they couldn't be ignored either. The rest of Europe was gradually adapting to the revolutionary circumstances underway in their countries and the Frankfurt Assembly plodded along, safe in the knowledge that it had the majority of liberal nationalist opinion on its side. And this might well have been true, but the Frankfurt Assembly lacked the support either of Austria's government or of Prussia's beleaguered king, Frederick William. In April 1849, overcoming the opposition of some in Frankfurt, the decision was made by that assembly to offer up the crown of all of Germany to Frederick William. We can only imagine what a storm this would have caused in Berlin, because the issue with this crown of all Germany is that Frederick William didn't really view it as legitimate. If there was to be a crown of Germany, and if it was to be offered to him, Frederick William would only accept it if the princes, the different German princes that made up those 39 other German states, if they agreed unanimously to present it to him. So this is a roundabout way of saying Frederick William didn't recognise the legitimacy of the people when it came to making decisions like these. Instead, what he wanted was some vindication from his royal peers. We imagine that if this had been given, if all 39 German princes had agreed to hand the crown of Germany to Frederick William, then surely Prussia would have been in a strong enough position anyway to challenge Austria directly. Of course, this is not what happened. This crown did not come from the German princes. It came from the groundswell of nationalist opinion held by many German citizens. And this is not to say that Frederick William didn't really care for the idea of German unity. Unlike his successor Wilhelm, Frederick William was a fairly nationalist type of German, and he did hold, close to his heart, a dream of national German unity, so long as it was under Prussian direction, of course. Although Frederick William admitted that everyone who spoke German wanted deep down some kind of union of all German peoples, he claimed at the same time, With this constitution, I do not want it. Having been forced to sign a constitution himself, we can understand Frederick William's aversion to making constitutional promises, and if he had accepted this crown from the Frankfurt Assembly, he would have had to go along with all of the laws and all of the decisions they had already made. He would have had to fit in with their way of doing things, and that would have meant accepting a constitution and accepting new laws to govern this new kingdom or empire or whatever these delegates from the different German states wanted to create. The refusal of Frederick William to accept the crown neutered the ability of this Frankfurt Assembly to implement any kind of policy. Already in the previous year, its members had come under scrutiny from all king-fearing Prussians, liberal and conservative alike, for having the nerve to suggest that Prussia's army should be placed under the Frankfurt Assembly's command. This suggestion, which to Frederick William was insulting, came from a serious source of desperation on the part of the Frankfurt Assembly, 
because those assembled in Frankfurt knew full well that if they didn't have an army, they didn't exactly have much in the way of leverage, and they were very unlikely to actually be in a position to implement any of the decisions that they made. Over the course of spring and summer 1849, the Frankfurt Assembly's members began to disperse. A pretty anticlimactic way to end such a revolutionary movement, which came, as we now know, two decades too early. At this point in mid-1849, Austria continued its battle against the Hungarian rebels, so its gaze was momentarily off of key German matters. Because of the troubles that Austria was facing, it'd be fair to say that for the first time in a long time, there was some kind of power vacuum in place in Germany, and it was thought, it was theorised by Germans and Prussians alike, that Frederick William's Kingdom of Prussia would fill this power vacuum. At least until Austria turned its head around to Germany and tried to intervene there. We now have to introduce you to another important figure, a man by the name of Josef von Radowitz. Radowitz was an intimate of King Frederick William. He was a renowned Prussian statesman, and he had been a former envoy to the Frankfurt Diet before it assumed its revolutionary character. Radowitz proved to be a key influential figure during this point. He argued for Prussian assertiveness in the face of Austria's distraction. The crown of all of Germany might not be in Frederick William's hands, but Radowitz still insisted that Prussia should show its determination to preserve the idea of the German nation. As a result of this, through the summer of 1849, Radowitz underwent a badgering campaign. He pressured several German princes into joining the new Erfurt Diet, a kind of second attempt at legitimising Prussia's predominance in Germany. Radowitz was anti-Austrian, and in many ways he was the prelude to Bismarck's character and policy. At this stage, he encouraged Frederick William to send troops into neighbouring states like Saxony and Baden in order to put down their radical revolts, and under this cloud of Prussian domination, it seemed easier to make the lesser German states see things Prussia's way. Remember though, and it always comes back to this at this point, that the key ingredient in Frederick William's activism was the Austrian preoccupation. As a traditionalist, and a realist deep down, it was above Frederick William's imagination to suppose that Vienna's position among the Germans would ever be toppled. Or that the Habsburgs could ever be supplanted as the cultural and historical masters of German culture. Compared to Vienna, after all, what was Berlin but a cold, choleric, grey cluster of buildings with no record of cultural achievement save that which Frederick the Great had reluctantly tacked onto it before himself, scurrying off to his new palace at San Suu which of course was built in the French style. This is all to say that while the Austrian cat was away, Frederick William was perfectly willing to humour Radowitz and see how far he could take this vision of German unity under Prussian control, without, at the same time, doing something as radical as accepting a crown handed to him by citizens. Perhaps Frederick William imagined that the German princes would decide to hand him this crown, if Prussia appeared dominant enough, but time was running out for Berlin. By autumn 1849, with some significant Russian help, the Habsburgs defeated the Hungarians and restored order in their empire bombarding Prague and even Vienna, as it proved necessary. And now we have to introduce you to another 
interesting, significant figure, this time on the Austrian side of things. Radical Austrian politician Felix Schwarzenberg, having overcome the Austrian difficulties and become, basically, Prime Minister, was in no mood to allow the upstart Prussians to beat back the Austrians. The Austrians, in Schwarzenberg's mind, were the traditional power base in Germany. Vienna was the centre of German history and commerce, and neither the Prussians, the Saxons, the Württembergers, the Rhinelanders, or anyone else could lay claim to this title. Vienna had earned it. And in Schwarzenberg's mind, if the Prussians weren't willing to accept this, then they would have to be dealt with. Schwarzenberg didn't have to try particularly hard, though. As soon as he began making even just the littlest bit of noise, Radowitz started to get cold feet and started to worry about the implications of his policy. And Frederick William was exactly the same. He didn't want to stir the pot or let the pot boil over, as it were. And he was willing to fall in line, so long as that act of falling in line wasn't too humiliating. In April 1850, the Erfurt Union... Remember the union that Radowitz had created in order to have a kind of second attempt at unifying Germany under Prussia? It met, but its members were largely of the liberal persuasion, and they accomplished pretty much nothing. Their most notable achievement was to irritate Austria, and Schwarzenberg proceeded to engineer a crisis which would enable Austria to confront Prussia and knock her down a peg. How was he going to do this? Well, Schwarzenberg first set about resurrecting the old German Confederation and resuscitating its assembly to serve as a counterweight to the Erfurt Union. Now I know it's a bit confusing and there's a lot of confederations and unions running about, but don't worry, all you really need to know is that by resurrecting the German Confederation, a more traditionalist organisation in itself, disgruntled former members of the Erfurt Union joined the Austrian-sponsored Diet and Schwarzenberg awaited Prussia's response. One of these former members of the Erfurt Union, who had gone over to the Austrian side and joined the German Confederation, was the Elector of Hesse, and the Elector of Hesse had reneged on his promises to his liberally-minded populace. We'll remember before that I mentioned that there was going to be some serious consequences for those German princes who promised the world to their German populations, only to then, once they gave them a little bit of what it tasted like to be free citizens, only to then close that book and move back to the old book of absolutism, hoping that nobody would really notice. Understandably, after behaving in this way, the Elector of Hesse found that he wasn't exactly popular among his population. In fact, he found himself dangerously at odds with them. He refused to actually implement the things that he had promised, he refused to reform his country and bring in an element of democracy into it, and as a result, he said, he would need soldiers to restore order, But whose soldiers would he choose? Those of the Prussian-backed Erfurt Union or of the Austrian-backed Confederation Diet? In the event, the Elector of Hesse chose the latter. He chose to side with the Austrians' Confederation Diet. But this was doubly problematic for the King of Prussia, Frederick William, because not only did it mean that that Erfurt Union sponsored by Prussia had been publicly snubbed, it also meant that German soldiers would be marching over Prussian communication and transport lines. Why was this the case? Well, owing to the spread-out nature of Prussia's domains and to German geography, the main road linking Prussia's Rhineland and Brandenburg domains ran through Hesse. 
Schwarzenberg, back in Vienna, can't have been ignorant of these matters, and the issue was quickly elevated to something of a matter of honour for Prussia. And initially, King Frederick William was all for resistance, as was Radowitz. After some provocative confrontations, where shots were fired between Prussian and Austrian soldiers for the first time in generations, Prussia's generals weighed in and informed their king that Prussia was utterly unprepared for war with Austria, let alone most of Germany and, oh yeah, the Russians as well, which Vienna had on its side too. The standoff ended in Prussia's humiliation at Olmutz on the 29th of November 1850, and the humiliation of Olmutz, as it was called in Berlin, stuck in the craw of those Prussian officers, soldiers and citizens who were in the know, who had seen their king stand up to Austria only to back down publicly and make a grand stand of capitulating and falling back in line. This was something the Prussians found very difficult to do and it was something that, with their honour at stake, they really weren't supposed to do. They were supposed to fight to the end, to resist any sniff of humiliation and to fight against challengers to their position. But reality was a little bit different. There was no way that Prussia could resist the combined forces of Austria, Russia and whatever German states the Austrians managed to get on their side. The thing would have been suicide and Frederick William was at least perceptive enough to realise this, as was Radowitz. Thereafter, Prussia committed to supporting the resurrected German Confederation, complete with its Austrian-sponsored diet. The Erfurt Union was disbanded and Prussia's ability to dominate the Germans without Austrian interference was denied. Austria's position was reinforced and re-established, and it was left in no doubt that if you challenged this order, Schwarzenberg would have words for you, and maybe even soldiers at the same time. There was little indication that this reinforcement of Austria's position was a fact of European life that would last just 15 years. To all intents and purposes, it seemed as though the German question had been answered, and answered definitively in Austria's favour. The experience had ended bitterly for Prussia's statesman and its generals, not to mention its king. King Frederick William felt a serious sting of shame at all that had transpired. The facts of the matter, though, in 1850, were that Austria was still too powerful to challenge, and many traditionalist Germans didn't even want to challenge her position, interpreting in the Austrian, Russian and Prussian dynasties a somewhat sacred dam, if you like which prevented the dangerous passions and nationalisms of the continent from boiling over. The Austrian, Prussian and Russian combination was known as the Holy Alliance, and it had been in place since the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. It was, according to one of its primary aims, according to the treaty that had set up this three-way alliance, it was supposed to stop revolution, it was supposed to stop revolt, it was supposed to preserve the status quo. And this goal was effectively shattered by the 1848 revolutions. The Austrians and the Russians could both accuse the Prussians of thinking a little bit too far beyond their station, and of fanning the flames of revolt for their own gain. We should also bear in mind that a little bit further away in France, revolutionary events were changing the landscape of that country. And as far as Austrian and Russian statesmen considered it at least, France was looking a lot more dangerous because it was looking a lot more revolutionary and unstable. It didn't help, of course, although they couldn't have known it at this early stage, that a nephew of Napoleon would soon be sitting on France's imperial throne. 
So those fans of the Holy Alliance, and they did exist in Berlin, began to think that France was a bigger threat to Prussia than the Austrians, and certainly than the Russians. Preservation of the Holy Alliance was too important to risk war with Vienna, especially when such a contest was so in doubt and all of Germany seemed to stand in ranks against the militant Berlin. Joseph Radowitz resigned after this humiliation, noting with disgust the weak stomachs of his contemporaries. He would die in 1853, only a couple of years later. He'd never live to see his policy of opposition to Austria and his vision of a Germany under Berlin come to life. Radical and enthusiastic though he was, Radowitz was something of a dreamer at the same time, and he could never have imagined the scene which Bismarck would make possible in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. To Radowitz, as well as to his contemporaries, the 1848 revolutions were pretty much brought to an end, and they failed with the Almutz incident. Afterwards, it was back to the status quo, a status quo which now included Prussia with greater parliamentary systems than before, but a status quo nonetheless. And speaking of Bismarck, this tangent, to give you a bit of context as to what's going on, might leave us forgetting exactly where he stood. What had he been up to since we last left him victorious, getting a seat at the Landtag in February 1849? A contemporary of this radical policy of uniting all the Germans together and opposing Austria as this mission was pursued, surely Bismarck was pleased with Radowitz and approved of this approach? In fact, it is the ultimate irony, or perhaps the ultimate reflection of the contradictions within Bismarck's character, that he despised Radowitz's policy of German nationalism. He also believed that Radowitz's approach to politics and his anti-Austrian sentiments were completely wrong-headed. Don't forget, this is Bismarck before he began to develop those major underlying principles of his policy, which he was later to apply and make infamous. At this point, Bismarck didn't feel particularly strongly, in any negative sense, about the Austrians. He wanted Prussia to be powerful, of course, but his main opponents were the liberals. The liberals in Prussia, who had insisted, to the detriment of the king's power, Bismarck believed, that Prussia should have some kind of parliamentary system. At this point in his life, of course, Bismarck's horizons were not as broad as they would later become, and he was very much focused on home affairs, though that was soon to change. Bismarck wasn't even free to completely focus his attention on German matters as well. He had begun, for lack of a better term, to grow up at the age of 32. In August 1848, Bismarck's daughter Maria was born, and in December 1849, Herbert followed. Now a delighted father and eager to maintain his link with his children, Bismarck took some time to develop and, in some respects at least, soften his initial hardness. As most parents will tell you, children will either soften you or make you more bitter. In Bismarck's case, he reserved his softness for his family, and he took all of his bitterness and venom out on his opponents. After some stormy meetings, Bismarck henceforth would keep better control over his emotions. He would refrain from loud outbursts most of the time, and he would operate on more balanced judgments. However, at the same time, let's not get ahead of ourselves. No matter how many children Johanna might have, Bismarck's fundamental belief in his own importance and his own mission to one day reach the pinnacle of power in Prussia did not waver. At this point as well, Bismarck believed that Austria should be cooperated with, 
and under no circumstances did he want to see Prussia subsumed into a greater German empire. Closer to home, Bismarck was against a return to absolutism, mostly because, really only because, it would remove his chance to stand in Parliament and have his voice publicly heard. But at the same time, he loathed the constitution which made this Parliament possible because it seemed to undermine the king, and it seemed to require the king to relinquish power to mere civilians. If all of this sounds very contradictory, then welcome to Bismarck's mind. The man was a maze of contradictions, but at the end of the day, he was always looking out for number one. Further away in Vienna, the administration of Felix Schwarzenberg was proving incredibly effective at restoring Austria to her position of power. The triumph over Prussia at Almutz was his crowning glory, but even before that event, Schwarzenberg had shown himself a ruthless leader in a sea of what he described as weak and stupid aristocrats. Of particular importance for the future of Austro-Russian relations as well, Schwarzenberg had no compunction about welcoming in Russian help to crush the Hungarians. Amidst serious concerns in Vienna that the Tsar would consider this a favour to Austria, which Austria would have to return in the future, essentially an IOU, Schwarzenberg was said to have responded that Austria would astonish the world by the magnitude of her ingratitude. Indeed, having helped Vienna out in a pinch, the Tsar expected the favour to be returned when, in a few years, Russia bumped heads with the Turks and the Crimean War began. Tsar Nicholas would be left eternally bitter by Austria's policy of armed neutrality, which seemed to favour the Anglo-French alliance more than it helped Russia, and which also forced Russia to withdraw from the Danubian principalities at a critical time, thus paving the way for an Allied counterattack. It is worth noting that this legacy of bitterness towards Austria would be inherited into the 1860s, and this partially explains why no Russian soldiers marched to save Vienna from Berlin in 1866, or why no Russians marched to save Austria from the Hungarians in 1867. This was all to come, but until these disasters arrived, the immediate post-revolution years seemed to confirm the staying power of Austria, rather than hold it in question. Schwarzenberg's formidable personality would have caused sparks if it had brushed off against that of Bismarck, especially if the latter had been forced to reckon with Schwarzenberg in the initial years of his own administration. Thankfully for Bismarck, he didn't have to deal with Schwarzenberg, though in 1848, in the month of November, Bismarck was thinking more firmly than ever of a political career. Indeed, when the king was presented with a list of ministers to be led by Count Brandenburg in a new government, one of the Gerlach brothers had placed Bismarck's name on that list of ministers. No doubt, perturbed that such a reactionary and inexperienced individual should have come across him, the king took the time to write, in the margin next to Bismarck's name, only to be employed when the bayonet governs unrestricted. It was clear then that Bismarck's star did not shine brightly enough at this stage to be considered for a genuinely important ministerial post. It was also clear that despite their friendly conversations in Venice beforehand, word had gotten back to the king that Bismarck was not to be trusted at this stage and that he would likely do more harm than good if he was in power. Only when the situation was desperate and when the bayonet governed unrestricted, as Frederick William put it, would the king put his faith in this 
Bismarck. It was, at least in some way, to be the advice followed by his brother in 1862, when, shorn of other options, King Wilhelm approved Bismarck's elevation to the post of Minister-President. More than a decade before all this would come to pass, Bismarck toiled away over 1848-50 to on various committees, maintaining a reputation for radical conservatism and devotion to the king, but not much else. He did sit in the Erfurt Assembly, which the ambitious Radowitz had advocated, and which contained a plethora of liberal Germans from across the different states. From May 1850 until the closure of this Erfurt Assembly in November, Bismarck continued to argue against the liberal tide, and when a war scare with Austria began to seem more real, as the isolated Prussia backed itself into a corner and Europe watched on, Bismarck briefly allowed himself to become intoxicated with a kind of war fever, but this war fever didn't last very long in him. This part of Bismarck's life is so interesting because of how unlike his later policy it would be. Contrary to literally every pronouncement he would make on Austria in the future, up until he got his first serious assignment in 1851, Bismarck was one of the few politicians in Prussia at this time who insisted that the humiliation of Olmutz was not a bad thing, and furthermore, it wasn't even humiliation. Bismarck overcame the sense of humiliation which many of his peers felt by simply refusing to feel humiliated, and a few days after the capitulation on the 3rd of December 1850, Bismarck delivered one of his defining speeches in the Landtag, which deserves to be recited here. Bismarck said, Why do great states fight wars today? The only sound basis for a large state is egoism and not romanticism. This is what necessarily distinguishes a large state from a small one. It is not worthy for a large state to fight a war that is not in its own interests. Just show me an objective worthy of a war, gentlemen, and I will agree with you. The honour of Prussia does not, in my view, consist of playing Don Quixote to every offended parliamentary bigwig in Germany who feels his local constitution is in jeopardy. This speech might not have stood out too much to Bismarck's contemporaries at the time, but looking at it in the context of what Bismarck would later do and the policies he would later pursue, this speech seems awfully like an anticipation of what would come to be known as realpolitik. Bismarck was essentially arguing here that for a state to be successful, for a large state such as Prussia to be successful, Prussia would have to pretty much pursue its own interests above all else. This idea, the idea of state egoism as Bismarck put it, meant that as a state you were not to concern yourself with the affairs of others unless they directly interested you. You did not come to the rescue of troubled states and you didn't help them out of a pinch because their difficulties were none of your concern. The only exception to this might be if it directly benefited you to intervene. But as Bismarck argued here, it didn't benefit Prussia to jump to the rescue and to defend the Elector of Hesse. It didn't benefit Prussia to defend the Erfurt Union against Austrian domination. So she should just, for the moment at least, stand down and focus on her own affairs and on promoting her own interests. Another thing which is significant about the speech as well is that it gave Bismarck some much-desired fame, especially among the king and the king's courtiers. It was reprinted with 20,000 copies circulated around the country, with the result that many people who never heard the man before began to know the name of Bismarck and began to see for the first time in his life 
the kind of principles and ideas which this Bismarck was governed by. Bismarck wanted to increase his star power in late 1850, in the hopes that he would be considered for high office when his king had neglected to select him for any positions two years before. Now perhaps things would be different? Not so. The king still refrained from placing this 35-year-old Junker on the platform he felt he deserved, and 1851 came with Bismarck still spinning his wheels, waiting in desperation for something, for anything, to come along, where he could increase his reputation and recommend himself to the people that mattered. The opportunity for a ministerial post would be denied to Bismarck, and denied for several more years, but the opportunity for something else came around in late April 1851, when Bismarck learned that he was to be appointed as the Prussian envoy to the newly reconvened German Confederation, that Austrian-sponsored German Confederation, which had its date in Frankfurt, and where the envoy would be expected to sit. The original candidate for the post had been reassigned to Russia instead, and Frederick William had since searched for a suitable replacement for this post, before arriving at a solution. He could send the firebrand Bismarck to Frankfurt, thus getting Bismarck out of his hair, and who knows, maybe Bismarck would put his money where his mouth was, and do some magic. Or, on the other hand, maybe Bismarck would be ground down to a pulp by the conflicting passions and interests of the town, and having been taken down a peg, he would be less extreme, less radical, less grasping in his demands for a ministerial post. Either way, it seemed like a win-win situation for Frederick William, and so Bismarck was to be sent to Frankfurt. Two things are worth noting about this promotion that Bismarck got. The first is that Bismarck was recommended to it based on the belief by his peers, later proved to be grossly incorrect, that Bismarck would be a patient and useful force for keeping the Austrians on side. Don't forget, Bismarck had been one of the most articulate defenders of the Almuts Agreement, and this surely suggested that Bismarck would see things Austria's way, and that Bismarck would be capable of repairing the Austro-Prussian relationship which had been damaged by the tumultuous events of the 1848 revolutions. What we can add to this is that initially at least, Bismarck did intend to fulfil his remit as friend to the Austrians, so long as Vienna could be made to see that Prussia was deserving of special treatment, and that among the German states, Prussia was the most important. It was only once this special treatment was denied, and the friendship with Austria became conditional on recognition of Austria's predominance in Germany, that Bismarck soured on the whole thing, as we'll see. Secondly, and a point which is often forgotten, is how much of a poisoned chalice that this post must have appeared to some of Bismarck's prouder peers. Let's not forget that the German Confederation had been resurrected by Vienna under the threats of Schwarzenberg, so to sit in Frankfurt at this new date would have served as a constant reminder to any delegate that they were there on Austria's permission, and that the whole system existed because Austria had won and Prussia had lost. Whether Bismarck's peers agreed with these sentiments or not, they certainly could not rely on either Schwarzenberg or the Austrian envoy in Frankfurt not to rub the whole incident in their faces. Due to these factors, we imagine that Frederick William may have found it hard to find men of quality for this position, but Bismarck was certainly a man of quality. Even Frederick William could recognise that, even at this early stage, 
and it is to Frederick William's credit that even after Bismarck had loudly recommended his abdication, even after Bismarck had schemed against him and accused him publicly of heaping dirt on the memory of Frederick the Great, the king did not become warped in his judgment. He didn't become biased, and he still saw that at the end of the day, he had in Bismarck someone who could be very useful indeed. That said, though, it's not like Frederick William was doing Bismarck a favour by sending him to Frankfurt. A promotion from his old obscurity it certainly was, but the position was simultaneously a grave challenge. Bismarck would be sitting in the Diet which Austrian intimidation of Prussia had made possible. Because the German Confederation had been resurrected on the orders of Schwarzenberg, its Diet had been incepted for the sole purpose of undermining and replacing the Erfurt Union, which the Prussians had tried and then failed to make a go of. In short, Bismarck, later to be known as the agent of anti-Austrian designs, was about to travel to the centre of Austrian influence and to sit on a seat which had been erected thanks largely to the triumph of Austrian arms, for ends which Vienna certainly expected would be to the benefit of Austria. The deck, in other words, was stacked against Bismarck, but this didn't really matter to him because he had finally reached the point at 35 years old where his apprenticeship was over. After finding his feet, unleashing his passions, spinning his wheels, now he was, in the words of Jonathan Steinberg, to make his first appearance on the great stage of European diplomacy, which he would eventually come to dominate in his unique way. Indeed, although his contemporaries couldn't have known it, the appointment to Frankfurt was the first step towards a career which was not to end until 1890. And it was to mark as well, the beginning of a legend, which persists to this day. We're going to leave the first large episode of Bismarck Rise there for the moment, history friends. So I hope after this three-hour extravaganza you're not too exhausted and you're pumped for what's to come. In this episode here, we've covered the years up to essentially 1851, where Bismarck gets his big break. But in the episodes to come, and in the next episode, we will of course be expanding upon this story, so I hope you join me for that. Episode 2 will cover the years 1851 to 53. Episode 3 will cover the years 1853 to 59. And beyond that, well, let's not get into too many spoilers. Speaking of spoilers, of course, you can access all of this stuff in one lump sum if you head on over to the Patreon and join up at any level. But I'm sure I've talked enough about that already, so for now, I'll just say thanks so much for sticking with me for this first episode. And hey, if you enjoyed it, do let me know. Do let me know if you appreciated this deep dive into Bismarck's early years. And do let me know as well if you're excited for what's to come, because I certainly am. Until next time then, my lovely history friends, patrons and PhD pals and anyone else I forgot to mention, thanks so much for joining me and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.